Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Welcome, everybody. Zach Spear here. I'm sitting here with Mr. Perry Marshall. Welcome. It's good to be here. There's a great opportunity to, to respond to the creation research article and talk to people, particularly who come from a creation background the way that I did. So, Absolutely. So for those of you that don't know, I can't imagine that you don't, but Perry authored the book Evolution 2.0. And I'm not going to spoil any of the surprises, but there was a 11-page expose, if you will, by the CRS, the uh, Creation Research Society, and their quarterly magazine. They wrote an 11-page uh, review of the book. And so we're going to address some of the things in that review today. Yeah. And tell a lot of my story. We're because I think there's a lot of background here that's relevant. And some of this I haven't really told before. So, yeah, I'm awesome. looking forward to this. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So I think what we'll start with is just kind of where this all began. So, I mean, I know you came from a pretty interesting background in the church. And I don't want to steal any of that story from you. But I also don't think a lot of people know that story. So how did you grow up? Like what started this? Well, so I grew up at a super conservative church in Lincoln, Nebraska, and my dad became a pastor there when I was about 10 or 11. And before that, my dad had worked at this organization called Back to the Bible. He had actually moved from Lincoln, Nebraska, or from North Carolina, where he grew up. And my mom's from Virginia, and they moved to Nebraska. And so, you know, this voyage to this place where they didn't know anybody and they started working in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so, you know, not quite a missionary, but pretty close to it, right? Working for a nonprofit Christian organization. And for that matter, my grandpa Marshall was a Baptist minister in Virginia. My uncle Glenn worked for Transworld Radio and uh, worked as a missionary in Bonaire in the Caribbean for a number of years. I had an uncle on my mom's side who went to Bob Jones University and worked for a Christian radio station. My wife's brother has a PhD in church history, runs a relief organization called Children's Relief International. So I've been surrounded by Christian missionaries, Christian scholarship all my life. And that's where I come from. And so my dad was a minister at this church. And I remember when I was about 14 or 15, this guy named John Whitcomb, uh, author of a very famous book called The Early Earth, he came to our church every night for a week. He came and he had this presentation and this one and this one and this one. And so he was advocating a flood geology and uh, it's actually a whole view of young earth creationism, which originally comes from the Seventh-day Adventists. A lot of people don't know that. And I thought it was awesome. It was way better than the normal stuff that I was used to. Now, what was I normally used to? Well, let me give you an idea how rigorous my Bible education was. My pastor 
um, started Romans in like the first sermon on Romans. I think he got to verse two or maybe verse three. And you're flipping in your Bibles like you're in Isaiah. Now we're in Jeremiah. Now we're in Ephesians and now we're in Philippians and now we're in John and like every single thing would be cross-referenced. And this is the 1970s, 1980s. To me, the whole Bible was hyperlinked. It took him five years to get through Romans. Okay. Like this is serious. Like we are going, and there's Greek and there's Hebrew and like all this kind of stuff. And this is exactly what I grew up in. Now, um, it's probably not too much of a surprise to say that this was a little tedious. Um, <laughs> and I didn't always enjoy it. But when Dr. Whitcomb came, man, that was great because I was a science geek, right? And he's talking about the age of the earth and he's talking about the Bible and the Tower of Babel and Noah and the flood and all this kind of stuff. And it's a tour de force. And, and I thought it was great. So you're a science geek before this happened. Oh, yeah. I've been a science geek like all my life. I mean, I remember when I was five years old, I got in trouble because I took a hammer to my dad's transistor radio, <laughs> which he he was rather fond of his transistor radio, you know. <laughs> He didn't really like the broken pieces of circuit board, but, you know, it's like, I got to look at all this stuff that's in there, man, look at all these circuits. And so I was building electrical stuff when I was probably eight and I was building stereo equipment starting at age 13. So, I mean, I was a pretty serious science geek. And so I loved the John Whitcomb thing and I ate it all up. It's like, man, like I didn't know how all this fits together. Now, if you fast forward a little bit, Little by little by little, things start to pop up where you go, hey, wait a minute. So like, for example, I remember being in second grade reading dinosaur books and it would talk about the dinosaurs being 65 million years old. And I went to a Christian school and they, oh, just laugh at that. Oh, that's just the secular scientist. That's, you know, okay. so I'm not going to believe in this millions of years stuff. But I remember after I got out of college and I was working it as an engineer and I got into this conversation with a bunch of coworkers about faith stuff. And I was fairly competent with some of that, but this one guy made a comment. He goes, all right, but if you're going to sit here and try to tell me that the earth is 6,000 years old and stuff, like I'm not signing up for that deal. And I realized as soon as he said it, I was not equipped to counter what he said. And by this time, I have an electrical engineering degree, and there's a lot of things that I know. And for example, I know the speed of light. And I knew at some point along the way, I came to understand that when an astronomer tells you that a star is 100 million light years away, there's about six different ways to arrive at that number, and they all tell you the same thing. And that star really is 100 million light years away. And so that means the light left the star 100 million light years ago. And now a lot of people kind of try to dodge this, but this is actually a very, very simple fundamental thing. First of all, it's like division, okay? Like how fast does light travel? How long does it take to get here? How far is that? How long is that? Like, it's old. That starlight is very, (laughs) very old. And furthermore, 
as an electrical engineer, I knew something that most people don't know, which was how intrinsically bound up the speed of light is with all of physics. Sure. Okay, it's a constant. And so E equals MC squared. Energy equals matter times the speed of light squared. And that's a statement of both the relationship between matter and energy. Okay, it tells you how much energy is for how much matter. And you combine that with the conservation of matter and energy. Um, it also speaks to a fixed amount of energy in the universe. And there's all kinds of, like there's all kinds of engineering problems and physics problems where you take those two things and you figure stuff out. You figure out how much energy came out of a chemical reaction. And the thing is, it's all right. It's all true. Hmm. And physics itself fits together like this beautifully, it's like a clock or something where you've got all these gears and they all work perfectly, okay? Hmm. And this is why we can design chips and cell phones and like most electronic things are modeled on computers before they're ever built. I worked at a company that designed a chip and they spent months and months and months and months running simulations on this thing because once it's in silicon, you know, you can't change it. And so I knew because of the precision of the laws of physics, and I measured the speed of light in a lab when I was a sophomore in physics, and even things like the length of a USB cable is based on the speed of light. You know, like USB cables aren't 100 feet long because they won't work. They're only like six feet long. Mm -hmm. That's because of the speed of light. So there's all these things. So I knew that the earth had to be old. There was no way around this. And if you say, oh, well, the universe was made to look old, but it's not really old. Well, that automatically means that most of astronomy and most of cosmology is the study of an illusion. Because literally, you can turn your telescope, you can look at stars that are near, stars that are far, and depending on where you point your telescope in the sky, you are time traveling to earlier and earlier and earlier points in space, right? So we can almost witness the birth of the universe, depending on where we turn this. When the, the Hubble telescope came out in the 90s, we started just having tons of new data, new information about the history of the universe. And so there wasn't any question whatsoever that the Earth was old. And so, so when my friend said this, it was like, I hadn't quite figured this out. Okay, now later I encountered Hugh Ross, who is an old Earth creationist, and he's an astronomer and an astrophysicist. And Hugh made perfect sense out of all this stuff. And he explained the Big Bang and he said, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. And he explained how when George Lamatra uh, formulated the Big Bang theory in the 30s, everybody laughed at him and they were inclined to not believe him because he was a Catholic priest and they thought he was biased and everybody thought the universe was eternally old. But he said, no, it's all moving outward. And if you wind it backward, it all goes down to a single point. That was the Big Bang Theory. People hated the Big Bang Theory because it sounded like creation. I was like, wow, that sounds great. And I find out about this amazing fine tuning of the universe and how you know, if the expansion rate of the Big Bang 
had been less or more to the 120th decimal place, you wouldn't even have stars because they wouldn't have formed. It would have either sprayed out like a mist and never even formed matter, or it would have all collapsed in on itself. And the, and the difference between one and the other is so fine, like it's finer than any human engineered anything. And so as I started to discover cosmology, I was just immensely impressed. And to be honest with you, what I discovered from cosmology and astronomy was way more impressive than anything Dr. Whitcomb talked about in his Young Earth Creation talk. So it didn't take any kind of a big battle or anything for me to realize, oh, the universe is old. You know, a day in Genesis is a period of time. It's not 24 hours. And so, hey, you know, there's no problem. It's fine. So when Dr. Wickham was first bringing this up when you were younger, you weren't fighting this hmm. at the time. No, I completely agreed with it. But you go through life and you start picking up things and, you know, you go to zoos and you go to museums and you learn stuff. And what always has weight with me is, hey, Xander, you're moving around way too much. The sound of you moving is going to be very noticeable. So, sorry, it's not going to be fun, but I just need you to stay put. So, one thing that has a lot of gravity with me is not when people are preaching at me and giving me an agenda about, okay, so this is how old the earth is or something like this. That has less weight. What has more weight is when somebody has information about something that speaks to one of these questions, but they don't have a dog in the hunt and their career depends on it. Okay. So for example, guys that drill for oil, being employed in the petroleum industry only requires that you be good at drilling for oil. Okay. They don't care if you're an old earth or you're young earth or, you know, that's not on the job application. That doesn't matter. It's can you do the practical science of whatever geology you need to know to drill for oil? Well, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but, you know, like when my brother Brian and I started having this tussle about faith, you know, one of the things I quickly figured out is you'll have a really hard time finding a professional geologist who drills for oil who thinks the earth is young. You'll almost never find one anywhere. They're like, well, of course the earth is old. There's all these layers and layers and layers. And we can come back to that later. Mm -hmm. But again, like you don't even need that fine grain of an analysis. You only need the speed of light, which is a constant. And physics, if Speed of light isn't a constant. Physics falls apart. It just unravels. And physics works so well. It's probably the most exact science that exists. And in electrical engineering, heavily, heavily depends on all of this physics, all the way to semiconductor materials and everything. And so, so there was just the proposition that the Earth was young had no support as far as I was concerned. And so I had already gotten over this, but then turns out Brian was still a young earth creationist and he had this very tightly woven, you know, the young earth creation story blended with Christian theology. 
he was firmly in that world. And so this was one of the things that really unraveled for him. So again, I'd probably get ahead of myself and maybe we need to back up a couple steps. No, but No, it's okay. So when you're in the early stages, you're, Dr. Whitcomb is giving the talks, you're kind of learning about this young earth creation stuff for the very first time, totally accepting it. So the thing that like, so I was kind of raised in a somewhat similar way. And to be honest, I've never, you know, I haven't like made these, in, I haven't made hyper conclusions either way. I'm still kind right. of learning. Right. So I guess the big thing that comes to my mind, just because I've had a lot of, I guess, experiences in this type of environment is just the exact nature of answers that are given. So, I mean, I guess what the, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is when Dr. Whitcomb is giving these speeches and talking about the history of the 6,000 year old earth, is there room for questions? Like, can, like, if you bring him, Hey, uh, if you bring him some of these old earth facts, is there room to even talk about it? Or is it very exact? Like, no, you can't ask any questions. Well, so this gets you into some really basic questions about the nature of knowledge and epistemology, which is how do you know what you know? And so, you know, I was raised in this very tight doctrinal evangelical construction of how the world works. And it had certain assumptions. And I would describe the whole belief system as pretty brittle. So it's like, it encompasses a whole lot of things. And if you start messing with one thing, the whole thing falls apart and it fails to work. And this is what Brian is experiencing. So let me kind of describe our path a little bit. So I have to tell you a story about several things. So when I was a junior in college, I took an English class from this wonderful, amazing professor named Dr. Knoll. And he might have been the most loved professor on the entire campus. The guy was ruthlessly engaging, brilliantly smart, took his job very seriously. And so we're studying everything from Beowulf to Shakespeare and like everything in between. And every class is just mind blowing. Like this literature coming into it, it would seem dull. He would just make it come alive and he would show you how English literature is really the heartbeat of Western civilization and all the questions and the, you know, what is life about and what is a good human being? So it was just incredibly stimulating. And he was a hugely influential person for me. And one day, let's call my pastor, Mr. G, okay? Uh, one day we're sitting in class and he's talking about how in life you progress and a natural progression of life is to go from exact answers to being willing and able to deal with ambiguity. And he says, you know, a lot of kids, they'll start out in science and math because science and math are very exact and it's very comforting. But he said, the older you get, the more comfortable you get with ambiguity and gray areas and human beings and inexact answers mm -hmm. and all of the complexity of relationships and politics. And as you grow up, you move from the exact answers world to the, the much more difficult world of human beings. And he said, and if you want to spend the rest of your life searching for exact answers, you can go to Mr. G's church. <laughs> And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I grew up there. 
that's fighting words. That's like, man. That's totally fighting words, yeah. Right. And I felt as though he just hauled off and just slapped me, right? Because yeah. I loved this guy. And every oh, Mr. G. Or no, Mr. I, no, I loved Mr. Mr. Null, Dr. Okay. Null. Okay, I love Dr. Null. Now, Mr. G was a pretty complex character, okay? <laughs> he had some really great strengths. He had some really big weaknesses. But Dr. Null, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm 20 years old, and he makes this statement. I'm like, ow! You know, and I walk out of the class, and for the whole rest of the afternoon, I was just walking around in a daze. And then probably about two or three hours later, I was like, hey, wait a minute. I don't go to that church anymore. Like I'd actually hmm. left within the previous year. I had left. I'm like, why did I leave? Because the exact answers had become so excruciatingly exact that they were almost like driving people out. And what do you mean by exact answers? Okay, so... Where I grew up, it was kind of like the Bible tells you everything you need to know. So let me give you a real life example of this, okay? So when I was 12, my mom went bipolar, okay? But except nobody knew what was going on, okay? Hmm. So if you've ever lived with a person with bipolar personality disorder and, you know, one minute they're your best friend and the next minute they flip around and they're your worst enemy and they're hurling accusations at you. And like you walk in the door and you never know what you're in for. And there was arguing all the time and fighting all the time. And our family was just a wreck for like a year and a half. And mom, it was like mom was just on this bender and she's doing all these weird things and she's saying weird things to people. And you'd come home from school and the fighting would start and it would go until bedtime. It was just bedlam. Hmm. And my dad's trying to figure out what to do about this. And the church is putting pressure on him. Like, because your dad is my dad's a pastor. pastor okay. And you got the verses about a pastor should have control of his home and children who believe and like all this kind of stuff. And he's a pastor, he's an elder, he's got all this responsibility, he's teaching classes. And they're putting pressure on him, like, man, you get control of your wife. Like, what is going on with her? Like, what's all this rebellion? And what's all this anger? And, you know, why isn't she being a submissive wife like she's supposed to? And like, you know, I remember a couple of times the pastor, the senior pastor coming over and trying to talk things through and things are just spinning out of control. And finally, my dad got her to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist went through his stuff and he diagnosed her as having bipolar disorder with mild schizophrenia and he prescribed an antipsychotic drug which is called Haldol. And the board of elders found out that he had taken her to a psychiatrist. Okay. This is Mr. G's church. This is Mr. G's church. Okay. And it couldn't have been more than like two days later, Mr. G and this other guy came to our house and sat in our living room and we had this family meeting 
And they explained to us that because my mom was out of control and because my dad had taken my mom to a psychiatrist, my dad was being asked to resign from the Board of Elders, resign from his position, and step down to an administrative job. And the following Sunday, Mr. G announced to the entire congregation of 2,000 people hmm. that because of problems with Betty and the family, Bob has resigned from his position. And he's, okay, I mean, it was just absolutely humiliating. And, and the straw that broke the camel's back was that they had taken my mom to a psychiatrist. In their opinion, psychology and psychiatry were just a secular religion that was an alternative to Christianity. And Freud and all of that was just an alternate worldview. And we're not going to have any of that around here. And it will not be tolerated. And while we're having this family meeting, I'm sitting there. I'm 13 years old. And I'm just kind of listening. My sister was 18. And she was livid. My sister was furious and she knew this was unjust. And my parents are in tears. And I mean, it's just awful. And she says to the other pastor that came with Mr. G, she goes, if people knew what your daughter does at night, you'd be resigning. And he said, Robin, we're not here to talk about my family today. We're here to talk about your family. Wow. Okay. All right. So dad gets demoted and everybody's. So real quick. So when dad took mom to the psychiatrist, like what happened? Did she get, what was the result? So he prescribed uh, this drug called Haldol and she went on this drug and literally within days she was acting differently. She was subdued. She was level-headed. She was sane. She was also very remorseful. It was like she realized what havoc she had created. And of course, it's very obvious immediately this was a medical problem, right? This was not some spiritual rebellion or, you know, whatever. I mean, she had been kind of delusional. Like she would say things like, well, Bob, you're not really my real husband went somewhere else and you're just like a substitute that got sent in to, and oh, I have wow. to put up with like, it was just weird. And she how, was, how long was this period? Year and a half. Okay. So it was not yeah. like a two day thing. No, no. Well, year and a half of bedlam. And then she gets on this drug and like, it was really immediate. Okay. And so now we're in the aftermath, right? So mom has created bedlam in the family for a year and a half. And now she's remorseful. Dad's been demoted from his job. Everybody's wondering what's going on. Dad was, I mean, like all the guys at work that when the elders would go out to lunch, he couldn't go, you know, so he, he was definitely in the out group. And I have to say, like, there was a long string of people who because they couldn't keep their families in line or or something like that, that they ended up having to leave. So, like, hmm. remember the guy who said, we're not here to talk about yep. my family. We're here to talk about your family. Well, he had his turn like two years later. His son, who I knew, like, got caught smoking pot. And he got fired from his job. 
And not only that, he kind of got ran out of town. He tried to sell insurance. He tried to sell vitamins. And uh, Mr. G just kind of tried to make sure that nobody would do business with him. Hmm. Okay. I knew a maintenance guy because his daughter was partying or drinking or doing who knows what. Like the maintenance guy had to resign from his job. So like, I mean, this was really tight. And now I don't even know how to classify this type of a church. Fully. <laughs> um, first, I guess the first question is, is there more church congregations like this? Sure. But I need to back up and tell you a couple other things. So like we would go see our relatives and our relatives are like, man, dude, you got screwed. Like you need to get out of that place. And my dad said, no, I am going to vindicate myself. So Mr. G was a very, very smart, very articulate, very powerful, very persuasive guy. And hardly anybody would challenge him. But my dad wasn't afraid to challenge him. And so after going through all this and then Clearly, this is a psychiatric problem. It's a medical issue. My mom gets on this medication. He gets in Mr. G's face and he goes, you made a wrong judgment. This was a medical problem. This wasn't sin. This wasn't morality. This isn't anything like this. You owe my wife an apology. And you owe me and my family an apology because we didn't do anything wrong. This was a medical issue. And he stood his ground. And Mr. G relented. And nine months later, my dad got his old job back. Hmm. And Mr. G wrote a letter of apology and encouragement to my mom saying, you know, we believe in you. And like, now, this didn't keep my mom from being afraid of him for the rest of her life. And she literally was. She was terrified of this guy. But, you know, at least he tried to make it right. Um, now, what, maybe a month after my dad got reinstated, he found out he had cancer. And uh, kidney out, cancer gone. Year and a half later, uh, cancer comes back. In fact, I remember I was in the basement near the bottom of the stairs, I heard my dad walk in the door and my mom comes in the kitchen and I hear my dad say to my mom, Betty, I've got cancer again. And she like crumpled, like she just went to pieces and she's crying. And I listen to this whole conversation like, well, you know, we're going to see if we can get some treatments and try to solve this. But a year and a half after that, my dad died and I was 17. So I can't help but notice a little bit of it. So your, your mom was made better by the medicine. Yeah. Did your dad go in for medical treatment as well? Or was that looked at? Yeah. No, that, that was okay. They weren't against that. Okay. Yeah. Dad, he had cancer treatments in Houston. He had cancer treatments in Maryland and, and the church was extremely supportive. Okay. Like people brought casseroles and there was a couple of generous people that like, Bob, I'll, I'll pay for your plane tickets. You know, just tell me how much your plane tickets are to go to the cancer treatments and we'll pay for those. And um, they lived in Maryland for a month doing a cancer treatment. Another family took me and my brother in and, and like 
all kinds of stuff. In fact, to just give you an idea of how supportive they were, about three months before my dad died, it had become clear, like, this stuff just isn't working, and he's going downhill. And people that were in the know knew this. And so my parents at church one night, and the sermon ends early, and Mr. G says, I'd like Bob and Betty to come up on the stage. And it looks like something's up, but... And like everybody knows except them and they go up on the stage and Mr. G basically says, well, you know, we're in the book of Job and Job's about hardships and you've had a lot of Job in your life. And so we decided to try to help you out. And we sent out a fundraiser letter because we know, Bob, we know you've never been to California and we know you'd like to go to California. And so we raised some money. And we got $10,000 and you guys can go to California. I mean, my parents are just speechless, right? And like, there's a standing ovation. And, and so then my dad gets out his travel atlas and, and his budget and everything. He figured out how we could go. So we lived in Nebraska. We'd never been west of Colorado. He figured out how to hit every single state west of Nebraska, including Alaska and Hawaii. You worked it all, in, all into the budget, right? Uh -huh. Now, we were not a wealthy family, like not by any means. We hardly ever went anywhere on an airplane, like ever. And like, we're flying to Alaska, we're flying to Hawaii. It was amazing. I wasn't used to even having money. It was kind of a shock to my system. It was like, well, aren't we going to need this money later? Dad's going to die, you know. But anyway, it's like, no, we're going to have a good vacation. We're going to celebrate. You know, God can take care of the rests later. But, you know, this is our time. And so we had this five-week vacation. It was amazing. And, you know, and then after my dad died, there's more casseroles and more people, you know, helping with stuff. And there, and there was a guy in the church who he would call up my mom who, you know, my mom was like not uh, not the highest of professional qualifications, okay? I mean, this is a lady, she's been a full-time mom for years and years. She's on psychiatric medication. She still struggles with the bipolar stuff to some degree. You know, not the most competent person in the world. She's working at JCPenney selling jewelry, you know, which is little more than a minimum wage job. There was a guy in the church. He was a successful entrepreneur, actually had a technology company. He would call my mom and he would say, so Betty, how much are you short this month? Hmm. And he would write a check. Like he would make her tell him. Wow. And I, I'm going to guess he gave her $800 a month for a couple of years. You know, so what you had there was a very controlling, very exacting, abusive church, frankly, but where if you were in the good graces, like everybody took very good care of each other. So like, I have a lot of mixed feelings about all this. Now, my dad had a friend named Verge. And Verge ran the counseling department at this church. And by the way, my dad had a degree in psychology from a Christian college in North Carolina. And Verge 
and dad, we're, we're always talking about counseling people and helping people. I don't know how many people my dad counseled at some level or another, but like this is a guy, he knew the bones in people's closets because if you get into that kind of stuff, you're just going to sure. be exposed to it. And so my dad told Verge, he said, after I die, Mr. G is going to come after your counseling department because he doesn't like it. So Mr. G was now convinced that psychiatry was valid. Okay, because psychiatry is medicine. Psychiatry is like biochemistry and the brain. And it's a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. Okay, but he thought psychology was just like a secular religion. He hated psychology. Mm -hmm. Well, what Verge was all about was we're going to take the best of Christian ideas and biblical and Holy Spirit and all this other stuff. But. If there are insights from the psychological world that help us understand people's problems, and we're going to do that too, and we're going to put it all together, Mr. G did not like this. Okay. Not one bit. And so, sure enough, after my dad died, it was war on the counseling department. And eventually, Mr. G just dropped the hammer on the counseling department. He fired my dad's friend, Verge, and, um, and the whole church split. Because of that? Yeah. It was that, and it was like also kind of personality issues with Mr. G. And I remember I went to see Mr. G when I was 19, and the church is falling apart. And I said, so I got a question. I said, our church has a radio ministry. They have a TV ministry. You know, St. Paul didn't have radio and TV, but we're using that. But, you know, last week in your sermon, you said St. Paul didn't have psychology, so we're not going to use it. So why are we using technology in this department, but not in this department? And basically, the answer I got was because I'm the boss and I don't like it. I mean, really, you know, if you ever have a one-on-one conversation with a very powerful person who's kind of intimidates you, but like you actually just sit down. Sometimes you'll get answers that kind of surprise you. You know, he was being fairly forthright. He's like, well, you know, I'm in charge of this church and I just don't want it. Like, well, okay. And I remember going home and thinking really, really hard about this because What Mr. G was trying to do was be like a biblical purist, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was kind of like if you could look at it from his point of view, it's like, man, I got these 66 books of the Bible. The Bible is the most complex piece of literature that there is. Like, I think I can absolutely say that as a true statement. There is nothing like the Bible and it's hyperlinked and there's nothing been written about more than the Bible by even there's not even a close second. Okay, it's an incredibly subtle and complex document. I think maybe you could say to Mr. G, like, man, I got my hands full just figuring this out without trying to incorporate everything else on top of it. But I sat there and I really thought hard about it. And I thought, okay, Uh, what Verge wanted to do was filter psychology through the Bible and through the Christian lens and figure out 
what do I keep and what do I leave behind? And that's what Verge wanted to do. And here's the conclusion I came to. If I only work within the framework of the Bible, I will never question my own assumptions. I won't even know what they are. Mm -hmm. Because nobody reads the Bible in a vacuum. Everybody comes to any piece of literature with their presuppositions and everything. If I take any field, psychology, science, anything else, and I filter it through the Bible, every time I do that, I'll learn more about the Bible and I'll learn more about psychology. I'll learn more about the Bible. I'll learn more about science because anytime you take two different worlds, and of course the Bible was all written 2000 plus years ago. Anytime you take two worlds that come from completely different places and you merge them together, each will shed huge amount of light on the other. It's just like if you've only lived in the United States, you don't even know what it means to be an American. Mm -hmm. I've been to 37 countries. I remember the first time I went out of the country, I spent a week in Brazil. Oh, my word. <laughs> the, the head shift that I experienced, right? Then I go to China. Then I go to Taiwan. I go to Hong Kong. I go to Germany. I go to the UK. And every time I'd go to one of these other countries, I would suddenly see the world from this whole new perspective. And so I'm actually kind of proud of myself that at age 19, I realized, you know, you do not circle the wagons around the Bible. Hmm. You do not. Okay, this thing, there have been more people have come after this thing and tried to destroy it and tried to burn it and tried to discredit it and proclaim that it's going to be out of date and all. This has been going on for 4,000 years. Okay, nobody is going to destroy this thing. It is the summit of Western literature. And you bring all comers. Okay, bring it on. And so I made that decision, and that's why I left Mr. G's church. It was like, there's dead bodies everywhere from all of this commotion. Mm -hmm. This place is turning into a bit of a tyranny, quite frankly, and you're not allowed to question anything. And so Dr. Knoll makes this comment about, if you want to spend the rest of your life searching for exact answers, go to Mr. G's church. And then it takes me about two hours and I suddenly realize, hey, wait a minute, Perry. You know what he's really telling you? He's telling you that you're growing up, even though you're 20 years old and you're just barely trying to figure this stuff out. Like you're headed in the right direction. And it was like, wow, now I really love Dr. Noel. Like this guy is good. <laughs> this guy is good. You know, and, and I've, I've seen this. And so and I think all these stories are kind of important in. You know, so I immensely value having been in an environment where you would spend five years studying Romans. I mean, I hardly know anybody else who has that much background. They taught me how to think, right? It's like the Internet comes along in the 1990s. I'm like, I know what a hyperlink is. They invented those with Bible commentaries hundreds of years ago. You would look up sure. a word and you'd see how many places it appears and you know, and you would develop like the World Wide Web of the Bible inside yeah. your own head, yeah. right? And so I can't tell you how much this education served me. You could probably compare it to conservative Jews or Jesuits or, you know, something like that. It was immensely, immensely valuable. And I've carried it with me ever since. That's great. 
So when you're talking about your mom getting better because of medicine, so it's almost like science saved the day, if you will. I mean, I may, I may be being a little too pointed with well, that. Well, it, it kind of, not very perfectly, I'll tell you. I mean, that medication was kind of horrible, but it was better than being psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> so it did something that necess- maybe the church wasn't providing. Yeah. But Could, then... And couldn't have. The church could have never fixed this. And then a little bit later, you know, dad gets cancer. Yeah. And it's almost like the church, like, comes back and almost in a way does save the day. Yeah. Science couldn't save my dad. Cancer treatments couldn't save my dad. But, yeah, you know, our faith community came around us and and, um, really took care of us. And, like, I kind of wonder, like, when people don't really have a community like that, and I know that most people don't, like, how do they deal? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I frequently think about that a lot, too. Okay, so you're in Dr. Knowles' class. You leave. You've just been mind blown. Yeah. It's three hours later, and you're like, holy crap, I'm growing up. <laughs> yeah. And I realize, well... There's a lot of ambiguity in human relationships. And I think if you really are a scholar of the Bible and you read the story, the Bible is a story of ambiguity. I don't think it's a story of exact answers. Um, You know, you can read the stories of Joseph or Jacob or Abraham or Solomon or David, and they're all about situations where there's almost never one single perfect way to handle things. You know, Joseph is a real hero because of the Pharaoh's dream and saving Egypt and everything. But at the same time, by the time the famine cycle is all completely over, the Egyptian government owns everything. Okay, they've bought everything from everybody and it has become a tyrannical state. And a few hundred years later, the Jews are in slavery. Right. So even the best efforts of Joseph couldn't help but create more problematic situations that then had to be solved. And so it really tells you that the way life is. But I have to contrast that ambiguity with knowing what you get, at least in the hard, hard sciences, which are exact in the way that Mr. G wanted the Bible to be, but was not. Okay. So like basic physics and electronics, and Ohm's law, and Newton's law, and speed of light, and all this stuff is exact as anybody would ever want anything to be. But of course, then you push that to the edges, and you find it has problems too. You get into quantum mechanics, where all of a sudden everything is weird and ambiguous, right? And then if you go to higher levels of science, so you start to get into biology, and every, it becomes so complex that it does not fit reductionist models anymore, mm. even though lots of people try to force, they force it into reductionist models, okay? And maybe the insights that I was getting in my early 20s about all of this, you could say prepared me for seeing the same problems being recapitulated in science, where people wanted biology to be mm-hmm. an exact science or a reductionist science, and it actually didn't fit reductionism at all. Now, this is probably getting way ahead of the game, but let's just make an observation that 
there are certain people, and I almost think it's more a personality type than anything. I think fundamentalist is a personality type. Totally. Okay. One for there, it's not everybody, but there are certain kinds of people that just crave exact answers. They want things to be right. They want it to be black and white. They want to know absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, it turns into this idolatry. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it shuts you down from asking certain questions. There are just certain questions that aren't allowed. Hey, this is the rule book. We're sticking to the mm -hmm. rules. Sure. Right. The Pharisees in the New Testament, the battle between Jesus and the Pharisees, these are people who craved exact answers and they would sit and they would come up with these hair splitting. So just exactly what can you do on the Sabbath? What can mm -hmm. you do? Yeah. And they would completely miss the point of mm -hmm. the whole entire thing that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right. And so I think people who have embraced the process of maturity will be fighting fundamentalists their whole entire life. And there's fundamentalists in politics and there's fundamentalists in religion and there's fundamentalists in science. And you have to make a distinction between fundamentals, which exist in every field mm -hmm. and which are very important, versus fundamentalism, which is when you make the fundamentals basically into a religion. Right. And humans are just so prone to do this. It's it's a comfort. Right. It's comfort food, man. It's Bob Evans restaurant. With... Right. It's cornbread. <laughs> right. Mashed potatoes. Right. Absolutely. So you're basically in fundamentalism land. Yes. I was a f raised. We were even proud of it. You know, back in the 80s, I'm a fundamentalist, man. It wasn't <laughs> quite as dirty of a word as it became, you know, later on with 9-11 and all of that. Sure. Yeah, sure. we were fundamentalists and we were proud of it. Yeah, totally. So you're fundamentalism and proud. All this stuff happens. Dr. Noel happens. Life gets kind of shaken up. Yeah. Did you start questioning? Now, are you questioning things that happened at Dr. or excuse me, Mr. G's church or... Is that not happened yet? Well, no, I was questioning it like as soon as I left, I was, but it really started processing it after I moved to Chicago. So I moved to Chicago when I was probably 23 and I had been out of Mr. G's church for a couple of years. I'd actually gone to church in Omaha because like the refugees were all in kind of in Lincoln, what, like when the shrapnel started going everywhere. Okay. okay. <laughs> like all these people are going all these directions and like you couldn't go anywhere without like getting in a discussion about Mr. G and I didn't want that. So my sister started going to church in Omaha where nobody's like in that scene and we just went with her. And so I just kind of set it aside and I didn't really process it, but I came to Chicago and it's like, okay, I want to find a place where we can worship in a faith community and I end up at Willow Creek, okay, which was for a time the largest church in, in the United States. It's the largest church in Chicago now. If you compare Mr. G's church to Willow Creek, that is like sex change operation. <laughs> it's like yeah. Will, Willow was like mainstream, not right wing, like Christian Protestant church. And there are a lot less anal about everything. In fact, it was really 
just a completely different way of approaching everything. And at this point, my Mr. G garbage starts like kind of coming up. And so I've got all this negativity about Mr. G's church and I moved to Chicago and now Willow Creek's this completely different environment. And I'm writing letters to my brother-in-law and I'm venting and processing it all at Willow Creek. Willow Creek had a completely different set of priorities and it was very educational to be in this completely different environment. And so one of the things I ended up doing was something called a seeker small group. A seeker small group is basically a Bible study for non-Christians where nobody gets to assume that they agree with any of this, right? Hmm. And it's, it's for people who are exploring Christianity. And for a long time, I ran the longest running seeker small group at Willow Creek. It was one of the first ones they ever started. And I kind of developed a reputation where they would send me the hard cases because I could handle them. And a seeker group, it was like chaos. Like you get these people together at a table and, you know, one of them is an ex-Catholic and one of them is an atheist and one of them is an agnostic and one of them is a burned out Protestant and, you know, <laughs> whatever. Right. And it was extremely intense. And there was this group that I had for quite a while and we decided okay, let's read the first few chapters of Genesis and let's just unpack it. And for some reason, I had the foresight to say to the group, I said, we're going to read this and I don't care if you think it's literal or figurative or allegorical or somewhere in between. We're not going to be concerned about that. I just want you to read it. And we went through and we just took it really slow. And we Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, the Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and all of that stuff. And within about three, four, five weeks, the whole group was just mesmerized. Because I think the first few chapters of Genesis... I would argue it's the richest piece of literature ever. There is so much depth to those stories. It is unbelievable. And like you get into it and there's more questions and more questions and more questions. And what you could see was it started out with them reading the scriptures, but in time, the scripture was reading them. Hmm. And you could see the change. And within a year, all of the people in that group decided that they wanted to have Christ in their life. And they all became Christians. And I think that if I had tried to ram a particular view of Genesis down their throats, it would have been disastrous. But instead, I just let it speak to them. And I want to say this about those chapters is each of those chapters is only the length of a blog post, but they reveal all the questions of humanity. The deepest questions of humanity are all in there. Okay. I mean, there's a reason why the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians consider that the origin story of humanity. Mm -hmm. And like you never 
run out of ways to look at the scriptures. And then furthermore, if you take other fields, other disciplines, and you bring them in, all it does is just show you more stuff. So like, for example, very famously as of late, Jordan Peterson did this whole psychology of the biblical stories series, which he's continuing. And he's coming at it from a completely different angle than anything I ever grew up with. I mean, he's talking about Dostoevsky and Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and Rogers and evolutionary psychology and doesn't matter. Like, you put stuff in and he's got millennials just hanging on the edge of their seats listening to this. And so, like, these stories are incredibly powerful. But it's like C.S. Lewis said, you don't need to protect a lion. You just need to defend a lion. You just need to let him out of his cage. And I had the foresight to do that with that group of people. And so then, you know, Brian gets into his whole thing about doubt. Now, let me try to give you an idea what happened to him. So he goes to Master's Seminary in Southern California, which is John MacArthur's school, he gets a THM, which is essentially a master's degree. He knows Greek. He knows Hebrew. He moves to China. He's an undercover missionary part of the time. The other time, he's an English teacher, and he goes to work. Hmm. And within a couple of years, he's starting to have doubts. And what's happened to Brian is, the way I would describe it is, at his school, they gave him the exact Excel spreadsheet of all the answers. This is what all the verses means. This is eschatology. This is the history of the earth. This is our theology about Jesus. This is our theology about this. And, and it, was, it was all like really neat and packaged. He goes to China, and A, the ambiguities and challenges of China itself don't really fit what he's been told. And B, he can get on the internet and nobody can stop him from asking questions. Mm -hmm. And after a while, he's like, hey, wait a minute. The earth isn't 6,000 years old. What else are they not telling me? Like, I can easily figure out that the earth is not 6,000 years old. You can approach it from almost any discipline you can imagine. Anthropology, astronomy, cosmology, physics biology, geology, hmm. drilling for oil for that, like, whatever. Earth is not 6,000 years old. Like, what else are they not telling me? And in fact, there was a point where he's reading the John MacArthur Study Bible, and it says, well, you know, the earth was covered with this worldwide flood, and it completely changed everything around, so we can't have any knowledge of what the earth originally was like because... Now it's after the flood. And Brian, it was at that point, Brian picked up that Bible and he threw it across the room because he knew they were just making up their own version of science. Hmm. That this did not fit any geological model that you can go verify by digging. Sure. Um, they were just gerrymandering science in order to make it fit a very particular reading of Genesis. And I mean, there was a, he had a bunch of questions, but like this whole thing really started unraveling. You know, my parents 
I asked my parents when I was seven or eight, I said, how come you never told us about Santa Claus? Like they never did the Santa Claus thing with us. And my dad said, well, if we told you about Santa Claus and then you found out that there was no Santa Claus, the next question would be, so what about Jesus? Is Did you make that up too? Well, Brian kind of had a Santa Claus moment with science. It's like, okay, so the John Whitcomb, Young Earth Creation version of science, not true, demonstrably not true. So what about everything else? Right, right. And it just undercut the whole thing. And again, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think that's what the Young Earth Creation Movement has done, is it it has significantly undercut the credibility of the whole entire Christian story. And it comes to the way Brian's whole, the way it was all constructed. It was like, well, you know, the whole Young Earth Creationist thing is, well, everything starts with Genesis and you have to read it this particular way. And then if you do that, then we have everything all figured out. But then if you change any of these assumptions, it all falls apart. Well, you know, that's actually an indication that you don't have a very robust system of belief to begin with. Is because you're reading in a vacuum now. It's strung together with all of these little dependencies. Every even If even half of them are questionable, it doesn't work. Well, that's a warning sign. So Brian starts getting some doubt. Yeah. What is that? That obviously snowballs into something. Well, so I had done all these secret groups with all of these people. I eventually moved my secret group to Borders Bookstore. And so now I'm getting anybody who wanders in. That was way more difficult than getting the ones that were filtered through Willow Creek. I dealt with all kinds of people like that. There was a very smart guy named Mark Valetic who was uh, one of the contributors to infidels.org, and he lived here in Oak Park. And I spent hours and hours talking to him. And I had done some internet stuff, and I thought I'd seen everything, but I had never experienced the level of scrutiny that you get from a guy who has a master's degree in theology and knows Greek and Hebrew. And Brian You're is... talking about Brian right now. Yeah, I'm talking about Brian. Brian is incredibly smart, and I was no match for his questions. And Brian really has a gift at poking at the deep questions where most people will only deal on the surface. So he's poking at the deep questions because where we left off, he was poking at the deep questions of young earth creationists. Right. He starts thinking, what else are they not telling me? Right. So what is it, what else does he start questioning? Well, that's like a whole nother conversation, but he's got questions about the inspiration of the Bible, the authorship of the Bible, which books we have. He's got questions about miracles. He's like, there's no miracles. That was a whole conversation, which we don't have time to go into right now, but it's very interesting. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so the emails are going back and forth, back and forth for probably a couple of years. Well, then I go visit him in China. And when I get to China and we start having these conversations, it was like, whoa, he has moved way further in his, like, he's already thrown this out the window. Woo. Like, I didn't realize this. I didn't realize how far he had got in his doubt. He's already thrown this out the window. Mm-hmm. And this really shook me up. Um, hey, man, this is my brother. And, you know, and so 
we're riding in this little bus and I go and I find myself retreating to what I am comfortable with. And I'm almost learning something about myself in the process. And I go, Brian, look at the hand at the end of your arm. I said, this is a nice, nice piece of engineering. And I'm an engineer. Like, you don't think this is an accumulation of random accidents, do you? And he's like, hold on. And he says, listen, if there's a billion falcons flying around for a million years, that's a lot of falcons, Perry. I'm like, yeah, that's a lot of falcons. And he goes, if one of them gets a random copying error in its DNA and its eyesight improves, then it outhunts the other falcons and then the falcons get better. And you don't need a designer. You only need mutation and selection. No designer necessary. And I listened to that. Now, I had been down the cosmology rabbit hole. I had not gone down the evolution rabbit hole. And I didn't really know anything about this. All I knew was my instinctive engineer intuition. Like, man, I could study the hand for the rest of my life and I could learn engineering stuff. So... I sense God in nature, some, you know, however that works. Like, and Brian is now challenging this and he's saying, no, all you need is randomness and selection and you get a hand. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure I agree, but like trying to be five chess moves ahead. I already know that most biologists would more likely agree with him than me. Mm -hmm. How do I know? I'm right. There's lots of stuff in science that's counterintuitive, and this might be one of those things. And I just thought, I am going to stop arguing with Brian about this, and I am going to go home and I'm going to figure this out. Because I have an engineering degree. I'm scientifically liter literate. Most people would get lost in this, but I think I can maneuver this without getting lost. Here we go. Because he was already, he had already kind of like drugged me under the water. I was already drowning. In doubt now? Yeah. Like, I'm not nearly as far as he is. And there's a lot of things we haven't covered. But I had a lot of questions and I knew he was asking good questions. I knew that my belief system was more or less grounded in the Mr. G church. And I... It's like, well, I don't know. Is Christianity going to hold up? I'm going to put stuff on the anvil and I'm going to start pounding on it. Was your initial goal to basically win the battle with Brian or was it just to find the answer for yourself at this point? It was for me. It was much more for me than him. In fact, as I started to get answers about evolution and science, Brian became disinterested. Brian had already made up his mind to at least be an agnostic. And he didn't want to argue about this anymore. And so he saddled me with all these questions and then he kind of walled off. And so now it's like, don't do that to me. It's like, now what? And so like, if I had gotten what I really wanted at the time, it would have been, I'm going to argue with Brian. Brian can argue as hard as he wants. One of us will convince the other. I think I can probably convince him, and then I can go back to being a regular Christian again. But that's not what happened. Brian doesn't want to talk about this, and I'm really not sure if any of what I believe is right. And so I'm like, A, 
I'm going to let science make this decision for me because if random accidents can make a hand, then I should be able to verify this. There should be some engineering principle or something. They sure didn't teach me anything like this in electrical engineering school. I can tell you that. But at any rate, you know, I'm going to figure this out. And then I'm going to take whatever I find. And I'm going to put it on a public anvil and I'm going to let people pound on it because I had one and eventually two websites that were basically apologetics oriented. I had one called Coffeehouse Theology, and then eventually I had one called Cosmic Fingerprints. And what I was really trying to do for myself with these sites was I'm going to take what I believe, I'm going to put it in front of people, I'm going to invite them to pound on it, and I'm going to see if they can destroy it. Does it hold up or does it break? Hmm. Okay, well, so I learned a lot from this. First, I learned that there was an awful lot of things that churches will try to put out there that you couldn't really defend. But I found out there's other things that you can defend. There's other things that nobody can break if they pound on them hard enough. So, like, just, I don't want to get into a version here, but for example, there is no coherent, widely accepted alternative explanation for the resurrection. There's not. There's a million little fragmented theories, none of which fit neatly together. There's no coherent explanation for this is what happened that explains all the evidence and everything that we have. Like the resurrection holds together pretty well, right? Or my DNA is a code thing, which that gets ahead of myself. But I would put the stuff and people would pound it on it. And what this did for me was this said 20% of Christian theology is 80% of what's important. And 1% of Christian theology is 50% of what's important. And the other stuff is majoring on minors, and it's really dangerous. So during all of this with Brian, did things ever get rocky in your guys' relationship? Um, They got a little strained, but actually he moved back to the United States shortly after that bus argument and took a job working for my company. Um, he's co-author of our Google AdWords book. And so, you know, we managed to, like, buffer things and, like, just not be constantly arguing all the time. There's a point where you realize that it's just not good for a relationship to be, like, pounding away on this. And so now I'm needing to go spar with other people, which is probably a lot healthier. And so... So I did something which was pretty unusual. I, I don't really know anybody else who's done anything to this depth. So the way that my websites were put together, people would sign up for these email sequences, like Seven Great Lies of Organized Religion or whatever, and the replies would come back to me, and I would see, can I actually defend this? And if somebody's going to poke a hole in this, like, I'm going to find them. So... What I started doing, I started buying Google traffic, which at the time was really cheap. It's pretty expensive now, but most people hadn't figured out Google AdWords, and, and I did, and I wrote a book on it. So 
I'm driving all these clicks from all over the world to these websites and people are signing up. And if people reply to an email, I get the email. And I basically decided I will take on any reasonable person. Hmm. I will ignore no verifiable truth. And I'm just going to put this out there. And if somebody can prove me wrong, I will change my mind. And I don't care what it is. And sooner or later, I'm going to find out, does this thing hold up or does it fall apart? Because I thought I knew before all this stuff with Brian. Now I'm not so sure. And so here they come. And over a period of several years, I had 250,000 people sign up for these emails. Wow. Okay. There was 75,000 on one list and 175,000 on the science list. And like, here they come and I'll take all comers. And it was like, if you can show me that something's wrong, then I will chisel it off and I won't believe that anymore. And what this had effect was doing was narrowing and narrowing. It's like there's a small number of things that nobody can seem to overturn. And so as I went down the rabbit hole of, okay, can an accumulation of random accidents combined with selection make a hand? Mm -hmm. Is that true or not? I started taking my discoveries and putting them on that website okay. and in those emails and seeing, can anybody break this apart? Sure. And you're coming at this from a science-based perspective at this point? Well, yeah. So the Seventh Great Lies of Religion series, which still exists, you can go sign up for it. That was like a theology kind of approach. But where did the universe come from was a science approach. So where did the universe come from? Where did all this fine tuning come from? Where does the information in DNA come from? How does evolution work? And see, remember what I said about, you know, like, if you have a geologist who drills for oil, his paycheck doesn't come from theories about the age of the earth. His paycheck mm -hmm. comes from how good are you at drilling for oil? So I was looking for stuff like that. Like if something is true, people from all kinds of religious backgrounds or irreligious backgrounds should be able to verify that it's true. Like there's no reason why should, there should be a special Christian version of science and then an everybody else version of science. Mm -hmm. Science being the way that it is, being mm -hmm. experimental and all that. Like you ought to be able to figure stuff out. And so I went down that rabbit hole and now I was really scared at first. Like I didn't know where this was going to end up I thought, Okay. So Brian's already, you know, maybe he's not quite an atheist, but he's close. And that like, what happens if I flip? Like, how's mm -hmm. this going to affect me and my family? Like, you know, is my wife going to take the kids to church? Are we going to have arguments about, well, Perry, you only say so much about all your doubts to the kids because, you know, we could be having that argument. Thanksgiving dinner could get really interesting yeah. with the relatives. Uh, maybe Brian and I are going to like smirk at each other while everybody prays to their invisible sky daddy, you know, <laughs> or the flying spaghetti monster. You know, I mean, who knows? I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it leads and I'm going to ignore no verifiable fact. So here we go. Was there ever a spot where you were like scared that you were like going to slip off the, yeah. the faith edge all the way? Yeah. 
yeah, but I just knew I couldn't live. I couldn't be a hypocrite. I couldn't like believe one thing on Sunday and then believe mm-hmm. a different thing on Monday and just kind of, you know, smooth it over, which a lot of people do. I couldn't do that. All right. Just want to know the truth. So, yeah, I was scared. And uh, I almost like felt the maw of the beast on my neck. It was like, all right, dude, like you got to figure this out. You got to make some sense out of all this. Did this ever bleed in the, I know you, you mentioned it a second ago. Did it ever end up bleeding into the family? Well, Laura knew that I was going through this and she knew that there wasn't anything she could do but give me her space. I mean, did this bother her? Yes. But she knew there wasn't anything she could do to talk me out of it. <clears throat> this was over her head. I mean, she's a very smart person. She was a National Merit Scholar in school. She got a full tuition uh, scholarship to college. She has an economics degree. But, I mean, if I was drowning in Brian's questions, she wasn't going to be able to solve them. And so she just gave me space. That's great. She was nervous. She was. Yeah. Was there any conversation about just what you said, like kids around the table? No, no, because I hadn't gotten to the point of throwing it out like Brian had. I just knew it could happen. And I knew I was less and less. There was a whole list of things that I was just less and less and less sure about. So I just had to go through it and nobody could do it for me and nobody could do my thinking for me. Mm hmm. You know, and I would talk to all kinds of people. I mean, I I would go to Willow Creek. We had this thing called Truth Quest that met every month, and it was like the apologetics people. Now, in a city the size of Chicago, when you have an apologetics thing that meets every month, and you get eight million people within an hour, you get a lot of smart people showing up, and a lot of these questions were over their heads. Mm-hmm. But man, I had to do this. And again, I had to let science make the decision for me because, okay, so is Brian right about the hand and the falcons and stuff? And I knew that I should be able to figure this out. I knew this from an acoustics paper I wrote in college where I kind of had to get to the very bottom of the proverbial swamp before I could piece the problem together. And I did, like I figured it out. And once, like once I got to the core fundamental principles, and then I could build on top of that. And then I solved the problem and I knew what it felt like. And what I knew was I had not gotten to the bottom of the swamp in the evolution question Mm -hmm. that for a while I was just watching the ping pong ball go back and forth between the left and the right. When, well, you know, that kind of makes sense. Oh, but that kind of makes sense. Oh, but that kind of makes sense. And, you know, it was kind of like the sadistic entertainment, watching them take pounds of flesh out of each other. But I had to get past all that. I had to get down to real scientific books and literature. So what is the bottom of the swamp? Well, for the evolution question, it's the fact that DNA is a code and that the evolution question is a question of how does code evolve? Now, that's not all of it, but that's much of it, okay? And so Brian actually, Brian's thing about falcons was actually getting really close to the bottom of the swamp, just the way he phrased it. He said, falcon has copying error in DNA. Copying error makes eyesight better. 
Falcon hunts better, out hunts the other falcons, all the, the falcon population improves in quality. Okay, that was actually a very clear and simple description of traditional Darwinian theory. It was by no means complete, but it got to the essence of neo-Darwinism. He described neo-Darwinism correctly. So he, I had this huge epiphany. I was lost and lost and lost in, but I knew that acoustics paper. I knew the feeling of when you finally figure something out and one day, bam, here comes that feeling. And it was, I'm reading about DNA, mutations, how the genetic code is put together. And I'm like, wait a minute, I know this. I know exactly what this is. I've seen this before. This is layered digital code. And I wrote an ethernet book in 2002, which is a whole nother story. But for the purposes of my career at the time, it was a really good idea to write that book. And I wrote this book and it's how the ones and zeros go from here to there on your Wi-Fi or that blue cable that connects your computer to the internet. And I said, DNA, ethernet, in fact, I've got a diagram I show in my presentations. You put, uh, it's in my Arizona State University prize announcement. Ethernet here, DNA transcription and translation here, they look almost identical. Hmm. I'm like, oh, so this has to obey all the rules of code. I know those rules. I know about information entropy. I know about signals. I know about noise. I know about digital signal processing. I know about analog signal processing. I know about error correction and detection. Oh my word, I can do this. This makes sense now. And it was correct. Like I had this flood of intuitions. I'm like, okay, so that probably means this is true. It probably means this is true. It probably means this is true. And over the next couple of years, one by one by one by one, I verified by reading biology papers that all my suspicions were correct. And it was like, it was maybe the biggest epiphany I've ever had in my life. When all that came together, it was like, okay, evolution is a software engineering problem. Or it can be framed that way. Now, it's more than that, certainly. But part of it is fundamentally a software engineering problem. Okay, I can figure this out. And all of a sudden, it started to line up and it started to make sense. Wow. What did Brian think about this during this time? Okay, so Brian is kind of, he's keeping a distance. Brian told me, he said, all right, Perry, I am going to be like a big soft pillow. When, meaning when people come after me like, hey, what about this? And what about that? And I want to argue with you. What Brian realized was that there wasn't any way that he could get in arguments about this with people without trying to proselytize them back the other direction. Hmm. And he did not want to do that. He did not want to be that guy. He didn't want to be the guy who's taking away other people's faith. Sure. And frankly, he just didn't want the stress of fighting this out with all of these people. And so he just kind of deflected stuff. And I would come to him with stuff and he would think it was interesting, but he didn't want to 
engage that deeply with it. So he stood on the sidelines. He did think it was interesting. And as my whole evolution thing evolved, he thought it was definitely intriguing. But you have to remember, he's not fundamentally a scientific guy. You know, so different people sort out the world different ways. And an engineer, physicist, a scientist, a chemist is going to approach these questions much differently than a historian or housewife or a business manager or, or whatever. And so it's like, well, Perry's got his own way of figuring this out. Right. So at this point, you've kind of figured the DNA is code out. Right. He's on the sidelines. Yep. And the thing that has come up to my mind a couple times is when you say science, I'm going to let science make this decision for me. Right. Which I think is very cool and agnostic in a way. Like, I'm going to like let this, right. you know, these facts tell me what to do. Right. Um, almost speaking from like a hardcore Christian perspective, do you feel that that's a maybe not a stance that God would want us to take? Okay, that's a great question. So first of all, it's a very myopic way of approaching the question. And like technically, I don't think that's really the right way to approach the question because I understand the limitations of science, okay? However, because I was an engineer, I already understood the limitation of science anyway. I knew what science could and couldn't tell you. Okay, so like science can't tell you why it's okay to eat a cow, but it's not okay to eat your office manager. Science cannot tell you whether it's okay to kill people and eat them for dinner. Okay, morality tells you that. But see, I knew that. So I don't think you can reduce all of this to just being a scientific question. I really don't. However, I knew that science could tell me, does it take a purposeful action to get a hand? Or do hands happen by accident? And the definitive answer from communication theory was, hands don't happen by accident. Codes don't happen by accident. Evolution doesn't happen by accident. And this whole thing is way deeper than anybody's talking about. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself now. But back to your question, whether you think people should let science make this decision for them, they will and they do. That's the fact. There are millions of people who have let science make the decision for them that faith is or is not valid. And that's a fact. Deal with it, right? You can scream, you can object, you can stage a protest. People are going to do that. And that's what I did because I had to wall, I had to confine this to something I could manage. I couldn't manage 9,000 questions. And let me also mention when you are in a state of doubt, there's a particular vulnerability that you have and it's the mountain of 9,846 questions all at once. Okay, nobody should expect themselves to answer 9,800, you know, that nobody can answer that many questions. Nobody should expect anybody else to. Nobody should expect themselves to. And you have to remember, it takes a lot longer to answer a question than it takes to ask it. Okay, 
And so I've met a lot of atheists. They can pound you with 8,000 questions. What they don't realize is I know how to ask them 8,000 more questions that they don't know how to answer either. Okay. And you have to take things in finite doses. Most of these questions, good answers do exist, but it takes time to wade through them. And you have to narrow what you're thinking about to something you can manage. Okay. So, you know, there's going to be thousands of people that watch this video that are, they get into various stages of doubt. You have to narrow the field to something you can manage. You can't just stand under a bucket of bricks while a bunch of skeptics throw stuff at you because it's not fair. And you have to turn the table around. It's like, okay, skeptic, you answer. You tell me how this works. And when I started digging, I started finding out the skeptics didn't have nearly as many answers as they pretended to have. Hmm. I quickly figured out nobody knows where life came from. I also figured out we know at a surface level how evolution works. At a deep level, we do not. If we knew at a deep level how evolution works, our software would evolve. It doesn't. We don't know how to make machines or computer programmers that do what bacteria do or do what animals do. Not even close. We don't even know how to make one self-replicating machine, even though we've been able to perfectly define what a self-replicating machine is for decades. Nobody's even made one self-replicating machine. And so, you know, this whole, the hubris around how much science we actually know is just obscene. And the litmus test for how much we know in science is engineering. If you can build it, you understand it. If you can't build it, you don't understand it. Mm. And you can take that to the bank. Oh, we completely understand protozoans. Okay, build one. Nobody's built a protozoan. Uh, Craig Venter has made um, synthetic cells from lots and lots of borrowed parts. He's re-engineered the DNA of existing cells. That's as far as we've gotten mm -hmm. with bioengineering. And so you got to be really careful when you start saying, we know how stuff works and we know how things are. You can't build it. You don't understand it. I want to jump in right here on this exact topic of not knowing. So almost coming back to the original stuff at the beginning with young earth, the creationism stuff. Yeah. Is it an okay place to take a stance that like, hey, the earth is 6,000 years old because they, I mean, obviously no one can build a earth. Okay. So yeah. how does one go about proving the earth is old or young? Well, so you end up having to do math. Okay. You end up having to make inferences using normal scientific thinking. So Again, if I know that star is 100 million light years away, and if I know that light travels at uh, 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, then I can calculate how far away that star is. Now, there's always this, there's a very fundamental question. Well, are the laws of the universe constant? Is the speed of light constant? Are the laws of the universe the same 100 million light years away as they are here? Well, you can never know that for sure. But what you can say is, 
if the laws of science, if the laws of physics are not constant, then the whole enterprise of science itself just falls apart. The fact that all of your stuff works, the fact that the video camera is working, the fact that the USB cable works, the fact that the Voyager satellite did what the Voyager satellite, the fact that all this stuff works, again, we're back to engineering. Engineering verifies that this kind of thinking is valid. It is inferred to be valid. We don't know that it's valid. Now, if you want to reject the idea that constants are constant, that the laws of physics are consistent, if you want to reject that idea, you can do that if you so choose. But it takes you back a thousand years in science. It takes you back to before we knew anything about science. And I just don't know how you can, like, how can you rely on the conveniences of the modern world and the technologies and the cell phones and everything else and the medicine and then say that you don't believe that science can tell us anything about history? Well, we can use science to determine 10 seconds ago, 10 minutes ago, 10 hours ago, 10 weeks, years, centuries ago. Why can't we use science to determine 100 centuries ago or 1,000 centuries ago or a million centuries ago? What's the problem? One of the most fundamental ideas in science is that the universe is constructed from a consistent set of unchanging laws that are discoverable and measurable. In fact, there's a verse in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 11, which is from the Catholic Apocrypha. It's at least 2,200 years old, maybe older. It says, thou hast made everything in weight and number and measure. That is the first statement, to my knowledge, of a scientific worldview that ever existed on Earth. It's more precise of a statement, to my knowledge, than anything the Greeks ever came up with. And that idea got developed in the Middle Ages to, by 13, 14, 15, 1600, becoming what we now understand to be modern science. And it was birthed out of theology. And again, it was based on the idea that God made an orderly world with unchanging laws that we could discover. Okay? And that idea became the unifying force that said, oh, Newton sees an apple fall out of a tree and he goes, hey, if the same thing that makes apples fall out of trees causes moons to orbit planets, then I have this unifying thing called gravity, and everything is explained by this one equation, okay, mm -hmm. which is a huge breakthrough. You can't describe how when you go from being in a world where everything maybe seems to happen for no reason at all, I don't know why there's a thunderstorm. I don't know why there was a meteor. I don't know why there was a comet. I don't know. Like, all these things just happen. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe Zeus and Apollo got mad at each other. Like, this is the ancient world, right? When all is said, no. The reason the, the asteroid fell, the reason the comet went through the sky, the reason the moon orbits the Earth, the reason those two stars are circling each other 
And the reason that the apple fell out of the tree is all the same reason, and you can explain it all this one equation. That is such a massive simplification. It is so elegant. And I love the word elegant. It's elegant. It's one coherent explanation instead of a bunch of little ad hoc explanations. And this is the nature of science. Okay? And what increasingly began to bother me was Christians rejecting this very thing that Christianity itself had given birth to. Hmm. Okay? Science wasn't born in Greece or Rome or China or India or the Mayas or Egypt. It falteringly tried to get started in those civilizations, but it never went anywhere. Why didn't it go anywhere? Because there wasn't a verse that said, thou hast made everything in weight and number and measure. But Christian theology had a conception of God, mm -hmm. which now in the 1700s, this became deism. It was the idea of the watchmaker that just winds it up and lets it go. Now, a lot of Christians, they don't like this watchmaker idea. I think this watchmaker idea is almost necessary in science. Okay. And maybe later in our conversation, maybe we could talk about miracles or maybe we can talk about people's spiritual experiences, but let's just set that aside right now. Okay. And understand that wherever possible, you look for regularities in nature. You look to do what Isaac Newton did, which is unify a million disparate things with one equation, and then all of a sudden you explain all of them. That is so beautiful. It is so immensely powerful. And it's beautiful. There's different things that you could look at a sunset, you could look at a cliff, you could look at the ocean, you could look at a woman's body, you could look at an athlete. Well, you know what? That kind of an equation is as beautiful as all those other things if you have sufficient education and experience to appreciate what it really is. It's beautiful. And so I started getting the sense that in order to preserve a particular way of seeing God, that Christians were undercutting the whole entire enterprise of science itself in order to make history fit their interpretation of scripture. Mm -hmm. And it really started to grate on me. It's like, oh my word, like, um, I don't want to get too far ahead of my story here, but I have this epiphany about DNA. Like, okay, so number one, all that code in the Falcon, if the Falcon evolves, it's not through random copying errors. Now, and number two, it's code, and all the other codes are designed. And I can't find any codes that aren't designed. Well, so that would make it look like DNA is designed. So really, at this point, now I had two questions. So one of them is, where did life come from in the first place? Mm -hmm. And, well, there has to be a genetic code before you can have replicating cells, okay? So that sure looks like a design argument. But then there's the evolution question. And we can go in these however order you want to. 
but I'll just say that most people who went the path I went down would have become old earth creationists and have and do. But I wasn't so sure that evolution was wrong. I just suspected that the explanation I was being given was wrong. And those are two different mm -hmm. things. And the reason that I suspected that evolution might still be true was because all of those emails and all of those conversations with all those people. And so what would happen, you'll notice I got a lot of books here. Just a few. A lot of the way I ended up getting a lot of these books is I would get in a conversation with somebody and they would say, well, you should read this book. So I would buy the book. You know, one of the advantages of having a fairly successful business at the time was I can afford these crazy experiments with this Google traffic. So like for years, I spent three to $5,000 a month on Google traffic. I was feeding my little apologetics machine and it was feeding me questions. And I wanted to know, can I answer all these questions? And I'm going to put money in the slot and I'm going to cause people to show up and they're going to pound on my questions and I'm going to find out the truth. And that's how I'm going to do it. In fact, I can get all these people to do a lot of work for me. Mm -hmm. Right? Totally. Let your enemies figure out what the questions are. And then you see if you can answer them. Um, so I was doing Maybe that. Plenty of work again. Yep, yep. And like I could afford to buy any book I wanted, right? It's like, okay, if I need to buy this $110 textbook, I buy it. Because it's my education. This is my post-college. Now, compared to what people spend on college, this is still incredibly cheap, mm -hmm. right? So, okay, I'm spending $60,000 a year buying books in Google traffic. There's lots of grad students that spend $50,000 a year getting a PhD. I'm getting my informal PhD on the streets of the internet. Okay, so, you know, so you got all these books, and I'm reading all these books, and I'm like, well, you know, the way they're explaining how evolution works isn't right. I know it's not right because communication theory tells me absolutely that it's not right. Like, I know that I know that I know this. Like, We're talking about like neo-Darwinism? Okay, so I'm talking neo-Darwinism. So neo-Darwinism is what Brian told me on the bus. Okay. Copying errors in the Falcon's DNA and occasionally one copying error makes the eyesight better instead of worse. And so then those falcons hunt better and the other falcons die and then the population gets better and better. If you combine that with population genetics and Mendel and a few other things, you have neo-Darwinism, which is basically the theory du jour of the 30s and 40s, which became cemented into modern biology. And so this was the explanation. Accidental mutations, random selection, everything gets better and better. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, but this is digital code. Now, here's what they're really telling you. Now, this sounds all believable to most people, or to a lot of people anyway. But let me give you an analogy of what they're actually saying. So, let's say that we buy a CD. We buy Boy by U2, 1980, or whatever year that was, right? And we have the CD. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to replicate CDs. We're going to get a CD stamping machine, and we're going to make CDs, except every CD is going to have a scratch somewhere. 
which corrupts a little bit of the data and the scratch is going to be in some random place. Every single one is different. So we make a million CDs with scratches. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we replicate those million CDs, but the ones with detrimental scratches get thrown away and the ones with beneficial scratches we keep. Now that is an exact analogy to what neo-Darwinism is saying. Well, guess what? If you scratch a CD, it always, always, always makes it worse. It never makes it better. If you corrupt an internet packet, it always makes it worse. If you corrupt a USB stick, it makes it worse. If you corrupt an SD card, it makes it worse. It never makes it better. Copying errors do not improve anything hmm. ever. And as an author of an Ethernet book, I can absolutely assure you this is true. And Ethernet and computers and cell phones and all of these devices, they have myriads of error detection and error correction systems. And when you're driving down the expressway and your daughter's in the back seat with her iPad and she's watching Dora the Explorer on YouTube or something, and you don't even know it, but there's all these hey, that packet didn't come right. Fix that packet. Send me another one. There's all this stuff going on between the iPad and cell phone tower to make all that come out right. And every single one and zero has to come in correctly or else the whole thing just blows up. And it turns out cells are the same way. And just like Ethernet hubs and switches and iPads and cell phones, cells have error detection systems. Cells have error correction systems. And as soon as I had this epiphany, I suspected it would be true. And then I later found out it was true. And I eventually found out, actually, evolution does not work the way the neo-Darwinists say it does. It works a different way, but it happens. And so... And what would you say? How does it work? Okay. So in order to explain this, let me tell you another story. So for about two years... I've got all these emails coming in and I'm going, this explanation of evolution doesn't make sense, but I've got all these books and all this anecdotal evidence. It sure looks like evolution still happened anyway. So how? And I didn't know, but I, for some reason, I just was wise enough, I guess, to just let the question float. Also, I decided pretty early on that, how evolution works or the degree of evolution or the role of evolution in the history of earth is not a central issue in Christianity. Like if there's a hill you're going to die on, that is not one mm. of the ones that you should die on. Mm. It is not even central, like whether animals are kinds and whether dogs and cats could come from a common ancestor. I don't think the Bible addresses that in the slightest. I don't think the biblical authors were even remotely concerned with questions like that. Hmm. I think it's a huge mistake to insert some kind of biblical doctrine into that entire question. Did dogs and cats have a common ancestor? The Bible doesn't care. Okay. The Bible doesn't give you any kind of precise definition about any of this. Okay. What does the Bible say about animals, by the way? It says they came from the ground. It says, let the ground produce animals and crawling things. Mm -hmm. Now that is not a very precise. And by the way, it doesn't say God just made the crawling things. 
It says the ground produced them. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Genesis story, at least in some roundabout, oblique way, might even seem to suggest evolution, quite frankly. Okay? It says, let the waters teem with fish in doesn't say anything about how they came to be, okay? Again, I don't think they're even concerned with the question. So I think Christians that turn this into a doctrine are just making a huge legalistic blunder. Hmm. It's a huge mistake. They're just importing all this baggage. It's, it's like saying it's wrong for a pastor to take his wife to a psychiatrist. I mean, it's so inappropriate. Well, anyway... For a couple years, I just said, I'm going to stay neutral about this. This is not a hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to deal with that. But I'm going to accumulate evidence. and I'm going to keep reading books. So I'm like, looks like it happened. Not sure how. One day, somebody sends me a paper. It's by James Shapiro. Well, James Shapiro is a highly regarded geneticist at the University of Chicago. And he tells the story about a woman named Barbara McClintock. And he was friends with and colleagues with Barbara for a long time, and she was a mentor to him. I think Barbara is the most important biologist of the 20th century. That's a big statement. Yeah. I Seriously, I think so, okay? In the 1940s, she was doing experiments with corn, and she would blast corn with doses of radiation and it would break the chromosomes of the DNA. And then she would see what happened. And they didn't understand DNA at the time. It hadn't specifically been discovered. But geneticists could look in a microscope and they could look at chromosomes and they could see things that were going on. She was very good with a microscope. And she was extremely acutely aware of what was going on with her plants. And she would look at ears of corn and she would figure out from the patterns of the corn kernels, you know, the dark ones and the light ones, she would actually figure out how the chromosomes had changed. Hmm. Okay, it was absolutely brilliant what she did. So Barbara McClintock is hacking corn plants and she throws the plant a curveball and the plant just throws a curveball right back at her. And she's like, whoa, what is going on here? And she pieced together very carefully. She figured out what happened. And what happened was that she broke a chromosome and the plant wasn't able to reproduce properly. But the plant wanted to reproduce. And so what the plant did was using transposable elements, which are segments of DNA that can move around. And moving a transposon is sort of like moving an adverb or an adjective to a different part of the sentence and making your sentence say something different, right? So this plant was taking pieces of DNA from other sections and other chromosomes and copying them over here. It constructed a unique new sequence that had never existed before, repaired the chromosome, and went on and reproduced. Hmm. And she figured out exactly what had happened. All these different genes and bits of chromosomes, she figured this out. And she presented this at a conference at Cold Spring Harbor, New York, in 1951, 
And their reaction from the audience was a mix of anger and like, you got to be crazy. Like some of them thought it was funny. Like woman, you don't seem to know genetics builds the plant. The plant doesn't build the genetics. Don't you know this? Okay. And like half of them were just angry. Like hmm. who does she think she is? Like plants don't do this. She just spent the last seven years meticulously figuring out this is what had happened. And she called these things jumping genes or transposons, transposable elements. Well, everybody ignored her. They wouldn't listen. Well, turns out she was the first person to observe an evolutionary event and also figure out the genetics of how it had done it. So you could make an analogy. It would be like she ripped, if I ripped a page out of a mystery novel and I gave it to a good writer and I said, okay, read everything before that page, everything after that page and reconstruct what you think that page is missing, a good writer could do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might take stuff from this chapter and sentences from over here and, you know, beg, borrow, steal from the rest of the book and piece it together. Well, that's what the plant did. Like a corn plant knows how to rearrange its own DNA. Well, this is like that M.C. Escher drawing where the hand is drawing a hand is drawing a hand. I mean, right. this is really trippy. I mean, if you just stop and think about it, okay, so... The genes and chromosomes, they build the plant, but then if they get damaged, the plant rebuilds the genes and chromosomes in a unique way. Well, so here's what happens. Everybody ignores her. Nobody believes her. So she goes underground with her research. And basically, she didn't publish her work for 20 years, but she kept doing it. Okay. Well, in the 70s, people started seeing this other places. And then she started publishing, and she won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for discovering transposable elements. Well, transposable elements are part of the bread and butter of genetics, okay? So Shapiro's talking about this, and then he goes on and he's explaining the error detection systems, the error correction systems, and how when cells go through these stages of repair and Every time a cell in your body copies, there's this error checking system that happens. And like, okay, that didn't copyright, fix it. That didn't copyright, fix it, which is exactly what happens when your kid is in the back seat mm -hmm. and there's engine noise and there's radio towers and there's all this stuff going on, but you're still getting the signal. It's the same thing. In fact, a lot of the mathematics is the same. You could go and we don't have, this is way too deep for this video, but I mean, we could go to different forms of error detection, error correction that exist in Ethernet and, and stuff, and it's almost the same. Hmm. It's scary how similar it all is. And Dr. Shapiro is talking about how a cell is kind of like an operating system and it cleans up files and it does all these things to maintain itself. And I'm like, how come nobody is talking about this? So first of all, Shapiro and his friends and the citations and the other papers he cites and McClintock, it turns out there's this whole entire community of people doing live evolution experiments 
just like Barbara did. And the science had advanced hugely since Barbara's time, because now we're in the early 2000s and I'm reading this paper. Mm -hmm. And Jerry Coyne isn't talking about it. And Richard Dawkins isn't talking about it. And Ken Ham's not talking about it. Mm. And the Discovery Institute and the intelligent design guys aren't talking about it. They're proving evolution happens in real time, mm -hmm. which I haven't even gotten into yet. Mm -hmm. They make new species. They do symbiotic mergers. They do hybrids, massive rearrangements of DNA. Like from an engineer's point of view, the stuff is just astonishing. The intelligent design guys aren't talking about it. The creationists aren't talking about it. The Darwinists aren't talking about it. It's like I've been buying books for two years and nobody's told me this. How is this possible? And I dig deeper and there's more. And I dig deeper and there's more. I find out about Lynn Margulis and I find out about David Prescott and I find out about Evelyn Witkin and all of these people. And they've been proving this stuff for decades. But they're like the redheaded stepchildren of biology. And I'm like, you'd think the Christians would be talking about this stuff. They're not. They're like, evolution, bad, bad, bad. It's like, no, evolution, amazing, amazing. It's happening in Petri dishes right now. It's why you have to finish your antibiotics. Why aren't you guys talking about this? So, Creation Research Science Quarterly chastises me for not knowing that all of their guys have been talking about this at their conferences for years. Well, I'm not the only one that doesn't know. Like, how come you guys are keeping this stuff a secret? And how come you're not explaining how evolution works? Hmm. So let's run with the creationist young earth view of the world for a little while. So the creationists tell you, it's like, I remember this whole explanation that, well, the earth was enveloped in water and the water kept the sunlight from coming through. So that meant people lived for a thousand years and then the water came down and that was the flood and it wiped out the whole earth and all the species of the earth were on one arc and because it was a global flood. And then, you know, and, and so you have this whole story. Well, we don't have geological evidence for a global flood. We have a lot of geological evidence for a massive regional flood in the Middle East about 5,000 years ago. Hmm. And we have 200 civilizations that have a, an arc story. Okay. And clearly something like that happened. And I do think Noah is a historical person and stuff, but geology and history do not confirm a global worldwide flood. But let's grant for a second, let's go with a global worldwide flood. Well, that means all the animals on earth have to have fit on an arc 5,000 years ago, right? Sure. All right, so my numbers might be a little off, but let's just say we've got 10 million species now and we had 10,000 on the arc. That's a million to one. Mm -hmm. Wait, 10 million, 10,000. Sorry, it's a thousand to one. Thousand to one species. So for every species you have in the arc then, you have a thousand species now. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of evolution. So if we take a young earth creationist 
story at face value, which mm-hmm. I don't believe that all of the animals on the earth were on Noah's Ark. I think their cattle and their stuff was, but, you know, anyway, if I go with their story, their story requires massive speciation, mm. massive evolution, not microevolution, like macroevolution. Mm. Okay, if you're... Not just like transposing genes or... No, no, like, no, massive evolution. Even if you're talking 100x in the species, it's massive evolution. So why aren't they waving the evolution flag and telling everybody how evolution works and why it's necessary? Hmm. No, they're just machine-gunning the Darwinists, telling, no, evolution is a hoax. Okay, type in evolution is a hoax, quote-unquote, in Google and see how many websites come up, okay? And, you know, right to this very day, you go to Answers in Genesis, you, they're all telling you about how, you know, Darwin and everybody is this big, fraudulent, secular crusade against Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, look, if Microsoft, did you ever use DOS? I remember DOS, I never used it. <clears throat> okay, well, yeah, most people, anybody my age, used DOS back in the day. So remember, you know, DEL file name or, you know, all these little things you type into DOS. So imagine that DOS was introduced in 1981 by Bill Gates and his friends. And imagine that no human being in Redmond, Washington ever touched it. Okay. And imagine that DOS added a Windows desktop. by its own internal adaptations and imagine that it added Microsoft Word and it added Excel and it added a web browser and it added a connection for a mouse and it added antivirus and imagine that the antivirus software all talked to each other and they updated all the time. Imagine that that happened and we got to now and we got Windows 10 and no employees in Redmond, Washington ever had to touch Windows. If DOS evolved into the modern version of Windows all by itself, would you be impressed? (laughs) I would definitely be impressed. You would be (laughs) crapping your pants. You'd be like, how on earth? I want to talk to that Bill Gates guy. I want to understand, right? This is how Christians should view evolution. And it just baffles me. Like, how have Christians allowed this to turn evolution to turn into a war between science and religion. Yeah, that's the, that's the big thing that I keep noticing is like there's two factions almost, and it's almost like both of them are waging war when in fact there should be more of a, a union. It's the Palestinians and Israelis, it's the Hatfields and the McCoys, it's the Republic against Northern Ireland, like it's this blood sport thing. It's a grudge match. Hmm. And it's not helping. It's not helping at all. And especially considering the science itself. Like, organisms do the most amazing things. And evolution's not a hoax. Evolutionary events are produced every single day. New species, symbiotic mergers, hybrids, massive rearrangements. Do you have any thoughts on more of like a macro evolution. So like if you think about neo-Darwinism for a second mm-hmm. and what they kind of say, you know, right. tadpole's a human type right. of deal. What's your 
thoughts on that? Well, so you look at the mechanisms of evolution, and there are mechanisms that produce small incremental changes. So transposons, like Barbara McClintock discovered, that's a small incremental change. It's not a massive thing. Horizontal gene transfer is when organisms trade genes with each other. That's a gradual mechanism of change. Epigenetics is when basically genes stay the same, but they switch on and off, and your body is doing this all the time. That's a gradual mechanism. But then there are two quantum leap mechanisms. So one of them is hybridization. I can cross a lion with a tiger, and I can get a liger, and a liger has twice as many chromosomes. And occasionally with animals, you'll get a fertile, usually you'll get sterile, but occasionally you'll get a fertile. And once in a while, it will take, and you will get a new species of animals from hybridizations. And then after the hybridization happens, there's this whole process called hybrid dysgenesis, which is basically transposons and epigenetics switching things on and off and dealing with instabilities in the genome. You know, this happens occasionally with animals. It happens with plants all the time, okay? And then there's another one called symbiogenesis, which is cellular mergers. So it's widely believed that a chloroplast, which has its own DNA and reproduces independently, is really a blue-green algae living in a plant cell. And it's like a Starbucks in a Marriott. It's like, hey, you know, you come in here and you provide some juice for the customers and we'll give you a safe place to do business. And this is what a chloroplast is in a plant cell. And we have lots and lots of good reasons to believe that this happened probably 2 billion years ago. And Lynn Margulis championed this theory. Well, so you have mechanisms of gradual change and you have mechanisms of sudden change. And the mechanisms of sudden change don't kick in very often. It, look, it's just like human technology. Human technology has lots and lots and lots of incremental improvements, but then once in a while, somebody will come out with an iPhone. You know, like I, when I was a kid, they came out with a Sony Walkman, and all of a sudden, a cassette player could be this big, and then everything's different, right? They come out with a CD, and then that changes everything. Well, in biology, it's kind of the same way. In biology, they call it punctuated equilibrium. Now, what Christians need to stop and think about is what is going on inside these cells that makes this actually happen? And you should also be asking, if this is all new to you, you should ask why. Like, why am I the first person to tell you this? Because this should be in every high school biology book, let alone freshman or junior or senior Unfortunately, the advanced mechanisms of evolution mostly only get introduced when you're like a sophomore or junior in biology. Hmm. But for the beginning of your biology education, they just tell you that the changes are random. Then later in your career, you kind of find out they're not random, but it's almost like they've already served up the pink Kool-Aid. Sure. They've already given you the notion that hands evolve just by randomly by accident. The truth is, we don't know how these cells know how to do what they do. We just know that they do them. It's just so amazing what they do. All those things you just brought up, the, the five pieces that make this 
I call them the Swiss Army knife, the five mechanisms of evolution, yeah. So the, the five blades of the Swiss Army knife, if you will. Um, these are things that the CRSQ published that they had kind of already known right. for a long time, right? So <clears throat> to me, I'm just, again, I'm kind of outsider a little bit right here, but it almost sounds like slightly fighting words. Like I'd be a little bit like, why have you not told me? Just what you said earlier. Like, right. why, why have you not told me? Why have you not published this? And, and they'll say, well, we did, and we talked about it, all, but the angle that's in all their articles and all their journals is, well, see, evolution, macroevolution, not true. Like, Darwinism, not true. Like, well, okay, I agree. Darwinism, as originally, no, not correct. Evolution, however, true. Natural genetic engineering, true, right? It's like, in order to keep this well see they don't believe in common descent they're offended by the idea that life could start as a single cell and then end up with including humans well i think it's a remarkable engineering achievement now strictly speaking there's a part of the crsq review where royal truman talks about symbiogenesis and he goes basically he says Common parts do not imply common ancestry. So he, what he's saying more or less is, okay, I realize that a chloroplast looks an awful, awful like a, an algae. But that just means God used the same parts, but he made them both from scratch. Okay, let's understand there's a very good reason why you would want a common ancestry view. And it's the same reason that you want one equation for comets and asteroids and apples. Sure. It's because it unifies everything. Okay. And furthermore, here, try this on for size. So let me take a little detour. And there's a really interesting book by Guillermo Gonzalez called The Privileged Planet. And it's also a, a film. And this is an astronomer who goes to one of these eclipses to observe the corona of the sun while the moon is covering up the sun. Right? So they go to India or somewhere where there's an eclipse and they set up all their equipment. And he's like, huh, it's really interesting that from the vantage point of the earth, the moon and the sun are exactly the same size in the sky. And because they're exactly the same size in the sky, it enables us to observe the corona. And there's no other way to observe the corona that way. It gives us data that we wouldn't have any other way. And that data helps us piece together the mystery of the universe. And it's almost like the universe is designed to maximize observation and understanding. which I thought was a very interesting argument. And I said, you know what? What if the universe is designed to maximize human understanding? What if the universe is designed to reveal itself to us as we uncover its mysteries? Hmm. Well, if you take an evolutionary view, that means that God is revealing more to us through a process that we can study than if he just makes things sure. ad hoc. Sure. Okay, so 
if life is a process that started presumably with a single cell and eventually ends up with 10 million species and ecosystems and everything, if all of that is a continuous process that can be studied, then science gives us even more windows into the mind of God. But if God just needs a zebra, makes a zebra, needs a lion, makes a lion, needs primates, makes primates, needs human, makes human, there's nothing we can study. Well, so let's talk about symbiogenesis. So the Creation Research Quarterly says, oh, I know it looks like they're the same, but really just God, God did the same thing twice. Well, I've got a friend. His name is Quan Zhang, and he's a professor emeritus at the University of Tennessee at Memphis. He did symbiogenesis experiments. He took amoeba and X bacteria and he put them together. They fought like cats and dogs for 18 months, but at the end of 18 months, they had made a symbiotic merger where one was living inside the other. They had both discarded parts of their DNA that they didn't need. They had consolidated functions. It was like a Starbucks and a Marriott. Hmm. Okay, it's like, hey, we don't need a whole nother set of pipes from the water right. company. How about we tap into these pipes and you get rid of all this redundant stuff mm -hmm. that's duplicated between the two and they merge together. Wow. Now, the formal definition of a symbiotic event is that once the symbiosis is complete, that if you separate the two, they'll die. It'd be like, okay, if I took a big saw and I sawed out the Starbucks and put it out right. on the street, the water wouldn't work, the electricity wouldn't work, right? And there'd be a big hole in the middle of the Marriott and like nobody would want to be in the lobby and nobody would want to go to the Starbucks, right? right. So they would both die. Same thing. He tried to separate them after the symbiosis event, they died. So symbiosis events have been produced and they are quantum leaps. They are massive changes from what was originally there. And they don't happen very often, but they create something brand new that never existed before, mm -hmm. right? So every green plant, every green thing you've ever seen in your life, grass, trees, it's green because of that symbiotic merger. It's the world's most successful merger acquisition. And we can study how these things happen because God reveals himself to us through nature. The whole earth is full of his glory. So I say Darwinists underestimate nature because they tell you it's random and accidental. It's not. And creationists underestimate God. I think the creationist God is small and limited and much less than the real God. And that's a strong statement, but I think it's true. I think they are denying an entire dimension of the grandeur of the universe. And I think they're doing a huge disservice to Christianity, to non-Christians, to everybody. And they're creating a war between science and religion that should not belong. It, it shouldn't be there. So are you, <clears throat> have you abandoned your young earth creationist? I am definitely not a young earth creationist. Um, and I believe in a common ancestry of evolution. Why? Because it provokes a higher view of God than any other view. As an engineer, I say, which is more impressive, 
making zebras when you need a zebra and making lizards when you need a lizard and making humans when you need a human. Is that impressive or is it more impressive if you could start with a single cell and it could all develop from there? In my mind, that's way more impressive. Because if I went to an engineering team and I said, I want you to design something that does that, the common descent version is way harder to design. And it doesn't require God to have to show up and do stuff. Now, this does not mean I don't believe in miracles. I do. I've been in the room twice when people got healed from being deaf for 30 years. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've seen miracles. And you know what's an interesting irony? Most young earth creationists don't believe in modern miracles. They They don't. I didn't. Where I grew up, which is very typical of a young earth creationist, evangelical thing, I remember this musician came to our church. And he was kind of famous. His name was Dino Kartsanakis. And he was this piano guy. And he was amazing. And so he'd come and he plays the piano and he has this concert. And everybody's like dancing. And it was really great. And in the middle of his presentation, he tells some story. I don't remember the details really. But it was something like his mother and his grandmother. And one of them was sick. And I think they cast out a demon or something like that. It was like one of these kind of stories. And she got all better. And then he goes on with this concert and we're driving home. And my dad says, we uninvited Dino from ever coming back again. I was nine years old. I remember this clear as day. I'm sitting in the back seat and I go, why? And he goes, because he told that story about healing that grandmother and that doesn't happen anymore. Hmm. And I'm nine years old. I go, well, it happens in my Bible all over the place. How do you know? Like, how do you know that didn't happen? He told the story. Sure. But Mr. G's church, they weren't, none of that miracle stuff. We're not going to let any of that around here. Hmm. Well, okay. So you go, all right. So the creation of the world is the series of miracle, miracle, miracle. Zebras right. are a miracle and cats are a miracle and humans are a miracle. And, but there's no miracles now. And what I realized is, well... If you don't have any miracles now, then you have to have miracles 6,000 years ago or there's no miracles. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> so I guess they're hanging on to them for dear life. Like, don't take away my miracle. Like, if cats and dogs can come from a common ancestor, then you just took away my miracle. Like, I mean, I don't know if that's right, but it kind of seems like that's what the logic is. Oh, makes sense. It's like, well, first of all, I've seen people healed of stuff. I've got a whole, if you go to coffeehousetheology.com slash miracles, you can read a whole huge blog post I wrote about a whole bunch of experience I've had. You could spend six hours just watching all the videos and following all the links. And, and I would encourage you to do it. Absolutely miracles happen. But if humans weren't around to observe it, then I'm voting for a natural process because then we can observe it and discover it. Hmm. Because I think the universe is designed to maximize discovery. And if evolution is true, then the universe is more designed to maximize discovery than if it's not. Furthermore, so let's talk about the prize and how that all happened. Yeah, that's okay. Because that's, that's a perfect segue right into this. So here's how this developed. So I go... DNA is a code. All the other codes are designed. Therefore, DNA is designed by inference. You can't prove DNA is designed, but 
is there any other explanation? And so I piece this together. I'm like, I think I got a pretty good argument. So I gave this talk at Willow Creek. My friend Andy, we had the apologetics thing called Truth Quest. Andy runs the thing. He goes, Perry, why don't you come and give a DNA talk? Because I know you've been doing all this stuff and I know about your brother and everything. So I go to Willow Creek and I give a talk called, If You Can Read This, I Can Prove God Exists. That's a little tongue in cheek because you can't prove God exists. But I admitted that. But I said, look, DNA is a code. And look, here's all the definitions. All the other codes are designed. There aren't any codes that aren't designed that we know. Therefore, DNA is designed. Therefore, God exists. And I gave this whole presentation. Well, I recorded it and I put it on my website and I put it in my email series and I pushed it out there and it went viral. And man, the atheists were mad. They were mad. Now, I saw something really interesting going on with my websites. And that was whether we were talking about science or religion. I mean, I get every kind of person you could possibly imagine. I got Scientologists and I got Jewish people and I got Urantia and I got Hindus and Buddhists and you know, every denomination of Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, like you name it. I talked to all these kind of people, but nobody was more furious than the atheists any day of the week on any topic. <laughs> it was like they were just miserable or something and they would be so offended and you just see them coming a mile away. Like you could tell just from the very first email, whether they told you anything about themselves or not, it's like, oh, one of these like really angry guys, you know, mm -hmm. like the disciples of Richard Dawkins. And so this started to become a game. All right. So how fast can I back the atheist into the corner? Can I do it in a week? Can I do it in a day? Can I do it in an hour? Can I do it in 10 minutes? Can I do it in three paragraphs? <laughs> you know what I mean? Really? Right. And it became a very serious experiment of how do I explain this in such a simple and clear way that it cannot be refuted so that we get down to the core issues instead of just dancing around all these side issues. So this guy comes along, he's like, I see through your sophistry and all of that. And he starts arguing with me about DNA and I back him into a corner. And he's feeling flustered. And, you know, sometimes with these people, it would almost be like the sensation of like, I'm strangling the guy. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, because man, they are so invested in this view of the world. Sure. And I'm challenging it and it is not making them comfortable at all. So he goes to the largest atheist website in the world, which is called Infidels at the time. This is 2005. And they had a discussion board. So it's the largest atheist discussion board in the world. And he posts a link and he goes, hey, you guys, I've been conversing with Perry Marshall, author of If You Can Read This, I Can Prove God Exists. Be nice to this guy while you rip him to shreds. Hmm. And then he emails me and he goes, hey, just want to let you know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, okay, I had gotten reasonably comfortable doing this one-on-one, -on -one, in private, not in front of a million people. Sure. 
all right, man, top of the flagpole, <laughs> and they want to nail you to that thing and make an example out of you. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, I don't know. Oh, please. I didn't want this. I got out to breakfast with my friend John. He's like, what do you mean you didn't want this? Like, you've been inviting it the whole time. Come in. Like, don't deceive yourself, Perry. Like, you've been... <laughs> You've been fixing for a fight and you got one. So like, I think you're going to have to man up and like be in the fight. <laughs> oh man, not these people. Oh, did you, did you knew about this? Oh, I knew about infidels. I was talking to Mark Valetic about infidels like seven or eight years before that, when we were sitting in a coffee shop in Oak Park and like he was part of their, I don't know if it was board of directors. He wrote articles for them okay. and, you know, so yeah, I knew who these people were. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. Okay, dude, like, <laughs> put on your big boy pants and go in there and defend yourself. So here we go. And I was scared to death. Okay. Like, okay, if you make one slip, if you even say one wrong word, they will just paste you to the floor. They will run you over. You know, you will be roadkill, man. You better be really careful what you say, right? And also on top of this, at this time, I have this blossoming reputation as a guy who's teaching online marketing, Google AdWords. A year later, I published the world's best-selling book on internet advertising, which is called Ultimate Guide to Google AdWords, which is now in its fifth edition. So I had this like really sterling reputation online, and mm -hmm. people like Perry. You know, Perry helps us figure out our internet traffic and stuff. And then over here, like, these people just hate me, right? And that's going viral. Like, you type in Perry Marshall idiot on Google and, like, you know, hundreds of websites would come up and all these angry people. Okay, so I got to explain this. I got to defend myself. DNA is a code. Then I got to defend that. All the other codes are designed. I got to defend that. Therefore, DNA is designed. I got to defend that. And here we go. It's one of me and like, I don't know how many of them, 50, 100, I don't know. It went on for well over a thousand posts, seven years. It became the longest running, most viewed thread in the history of the largest atheist website. And like I said, it's one of me and a mm -hmm. whole bunch of them. And they couldn't get around it. They couldn't solve it. Hmm. I'm like, snowflakes are not a code, and sand dunes aren't codes, and, you know, no, hydrochloric acid isn't a code. This is what a code is, engineering textbooks, biology textbooks, and I just keep defending this successfully. And they keep unsuccessfully trying to poke holes in it. This goes on and on. And after a while, it just starts getting comical. Like, they'll make up anything to avoid this. Well, eventually that forum got shut down and sold to somebody else's big long story, but it ran for seven years and, and I was very successful with this. And I was still like trying to figure out how do you nail this thing down? How do you keep people from just going around and round and round in circles, which is mostly what would happen. They would just go around in circles. And one day, I was going back and forth with this guy on my blog because this whole experiment of how do you explain this to the world is still going on. 
And I have this realization, Harry, you have to explain to him exactly how to prove you wrong. Okay. Show him how to prove you wrong. Because it's possible. Mm -hmm. If you can show a code that's not designed and show that it, nobody designed it, mm -hmm. you win. Mm -hmm. And Perry's wrong. So write a spec. And okay. So I get this engineering textbook and I write a spec and I put it up there and I said, okay, if you can solve this, I will write you a check for $10,000. And I'm like, I press submit, you know, on the blog, right? Yeah. You know, post. <laughs> What's going to happen? Nothing happened. He disappeared. Gone. Yeah, like, game over. Huh. I put money on the table. I told him exactly how to prove me wrong. Okay, you figure this out, and I'll write you a check. I mean, he didn't even say, oh, I don't believe you'll write me a check. He didn't even say that. Apparently, I had enough credibility that they knew. Okay, <laughs> famous author, public figure, you know, best-selling author. If, if a best-selling author puts money on the table and says, you do this, and I'll write you a check, then that's some serious skin in the game, right? Couldn't solve it. Well, I started writing Evolution 2.0, and a friend said to me, Perry, when your book comes out, Instead of having a $10,000 prize, you need a $10 million prize. And I was talking to this guy about it, and I go, how on earth am I going to get investors to be willing to write a check that big? Like, I can't write a $10 million check. There's no way. And this guy says to me, he goes, well, make it a, an award for the patent. And I go, what patent? And he goes, look, if somebody solves chemicals to code, if somebody can get a, like pour chemicals in a bathtub and get digital communication without designing it, that's AI, baby. Like, that's like a serious, serious advance in technology. He goes, Microsoft would buy that in a hot second. I'm like, oh, never thought of that before. Like, I, this had never entered my mind. Like, I had never really thought through, well, if somebody actually did figure this out, what would the implications be? Well, yeah, it would have implications for the origin of life, but it would also have implications for technology. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I went around and I started raising money. And I had to do what anybody starting a company who needs investors has to do which is you make a list of rich people and you go start pitching them, right? <laughs> you know, so I call my friend Greg, like, Greg, can we go out to lunch? I want to show you something really interesting, you know? And I stumble through this whole story and like, so, you know, you could buy a slot, you know, if you'll commit to a million dollar, you know, writing a million dollar check if we have a discovery. And then if I get 10 guys like you, you know, and he's like, oh, that's nice, Perry. But, you know, so... Now, I spent several years pitching people on this. I mean, it took a long time. And I didn't really have any, anything to show them other than the story about the infidels thread, my blog and everything. I, I don't have a book done yet. And I mean, this is pretty abstruse, right? It's like, okay, so hand at the end of your arm, evolution, cells, genetic code, AI. Like, it's a lot. Right. It's a lot That's of stuff even, to piece yeah. together, right? And like, 
Okay, so, you know, eventually I got a group of investors together and they're in all kinds of industries, medical doctors, cryptocurrency, you know, entrepreneurs, real estate, you know, all these different people. And we got backing for the prize. And along the way, it also became evident you need judges because, okay, Perry's an electrical engineer. He's not a research scientist. He's not at a major university. Like, it could kind of seem like this Don Quixote kind of a thing. <laughs> All right, I need real legitimate judges who, A, if there's a dispute about the prize that they will adjudicate, and B, to lend credibility that the whole idea is fundamentally sound in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I went on the hunt for judges. And the first judge to accept, I went to an evolution conference at the Royal Society in Great Britain. And I introduced myself to the organizer. His name is Dennis Noble. He's a very respected scientist. He's probably one of the top 100 scientists in the UK. He has a commander of the British Empire medal from Queen Elizabeth. He's the guy who figured out the cardiac rhythm, which made pacemakers possible. He was the first person to model a human organ on a computer, which he did in 1960 in the basement lab with punch cards hmm. on borrowed time that he convinced somebody to let him use on the computer mainframe. Um, he's a fellow of the Royal Society. He's been the editor of several journals. He's been the president of the International Union of Physiologists. Okay, serious, serious scientist. And he came on board as a judge. Um, I got George Church. Now, George Church is not a household name unless you're in genetics. Everybody in genetics knows who George okay. Church is. He has been involved in almost every genetic engineering breakthrough in the last 30 years. He has 95 patents, 420 papers published, and he's a rock star. He's at Harvard Medical School. In fact, if anybody knows what CRISPR genome editing is, his team and Jennifer Doudna's team at Berkeley are battling for the patent rights over CRISPR. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so this guy's a total rock star. He's on my judging panel. The president of Hero X, who hosts our prize, were the largest prize on Hero X, which was founded by Peter Diamandis, mm -hmm. who founded the X Prize for Space Flight. Christian Kadashini says to me, he goes, Perry, everybody knows you're a Christian. You need some atheists on your team. Can you go get like $5 billion of atheist money? And I'm like, well... Um, I don't know, but I got an idea. And, and, and I go to Michael Ruse. Michael is an atheist professor of the philosophy and history of science at Florida State University. Michael has testified in creationist trials. He's written at least five or 10 books about Darwinism and creationism and all this kind of stuff. He's a wonderful, delightful guy. I like him. Like, I find most of the atheist crowd to be disingenuous, but he's a really friendly guy. And so I got a hold of him, and he came on board. So I've got these three really sterling A-quality judges on my team. And Paul Davies is a very famous physicist, um, and he invited me to come 
to Arizona State University at the Beyond program, and I launched the prize at ASU in August of 2017. And Paul has been a longstanding figure in the dialogue between faith and science. I do not know what Paul's religious beliefs are. Um, he's not a Christian. I'm really not sure, but you know, he's met the Pope and he's met the Dalai Lama and he's been a peacekeeper. He's like, hey, there doesn't need to be this war going on. Um, and so he was comfortable having me. And, you know, there's several magazines that have written about the prize, like, for example, the IEEE Institute of Electronics, Electrical Electronics Engineers, uh, Frontline Genomics. So the prize is out there right now at this moment. It's $5 million. Eventually, I'll raise more money. We will get it up to $10 million. But we have a very serious thing on the table right now. Now, people ask me, they say, well, what are the chances that anybody's going to solve this? And I say, well, it's a really hard problem. I think it's the biggest question in all of science that can be precisely defined. Hmm. And it's a big question. Where did life come from? Where did the genetic code? It's a huge question. In fact, I think it overlaps with consciousness, evolution, artificial intelligence. It overlaps all kinds of stuff. It would be absolutely huge. It's hard. 10% chance. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. George Church is more optimistic than that. He thinks we'll solve it in five years, for example. There's an interview with him on Frontline Genomics about it. Hmm. But here's the thing. So the way that I originally framed it, it's a God of the gaps argument. It's God did it, and you don't know any other way, so see, I win. Well, okay. That's nice, but I don't like that kind of argument. I don't think it's a very good reason to believe in God. Because it's like, well, okay, so if somebody figures this out, Perry, are you going to stop believing in God? Or you know, kind does, of God for you. does God go away? Well, listen, every time you make a scientific discovery and a puzzle piece comes in, it leads you to three more puzzle pieces that nobody's found yet. I mean, I've never seen an exception to the pattern. Science just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it could be this is solvable. It could be that the universe is designed so that this question is answerable. Mm -hmm. It could be that the genius of God is revealed in the answer. And I'm certain that if you find an answer, it's only going to raise more questions. I think a really good reason to believe in God is to ask the question, well, where did the universe come from? Where did the Big Bang come from? Where did the laws of physics come from? Where did all that fine-tuning come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Where does morality come from? I mean, these are the classic reasons that have always been given, and I think they're very valid reasons. I like those reasons better than a God of the gaps argument that might get solved. But at any rate, no matter how that settles out, there's one thing I can tell you for sure. Codes are always intentional. Evolution is always intentional. You can't get a hand at the end of your arm through a series of random accidents. You get a hand at, through the, at the end of your arm through a series of 
precise adaptations to threats and to opportunities, which biological organisms are doing all the time. Okay, so Barbara McClintock's plants mutated as a direct response to what had happened to the damage. And they repaired the damage specifically. So damage is random. Repair is not. Hmm. Okay? And so all of biology is intentional and directional and goal-directed and teleological. And this is where I think a lot of Christians have kind of missed the punchline. The question is not whether evolution happens or not. The question is whether evolution is intentional or whether it's random and accidental. It's clearly intentional. We don't even know the degree. So now we, we have this whole bigger question. How do these cells know how to do what they do? Barbara McClintock put it better than anybody I've ever heard. She said in her Nobel Prize paper, what does a cell know about itself? Now that's a good question. I don't know what a cell knows about itself. What does a cell know? I don't know, but they know something. You know, bacteria communicate with each other with language. They have words for me and you and us and them and how many of us are there. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. I think cells are smarter than humans. In some sense, I mean, maybe they're savants, if you will, but they're better programmers than anybody at Google or Silicon Valley. If Microsoft knew what one bacterium knows, their stock price would go up 10x or maybe 100x. We would be in a whole new world if they figure that out. So speaking about that, how does somebody solve the price? What's the spec? You have to get an encoder, a message, and a decoder to self-organize. So for a digital communication channel. For a mortal like myself, uh, can you maybe explain okay. that? Okay, get out your cell phone. Okay, I text you. Okay. And I press send. And then what I texted appears on your screen. Okay. I'm the encoder, you're the decoder. Or actually, my phone is the encoder, your phone is a decoder. Okay. All right, it's that simple. If you can get anything like that to self-organize, and it's got to be this side, the message, and your side, they have to self-organize. If you can get that to happen, you win the prize. Okay. Okay, so like, we could have the letter A, and then Morse code for letter A, mm -hmm. and then back to letter A. Right. Okay, if you can get a system with a whole alphabet that will do that, You've solved the prize. That's it. It's actually pretty simple. Sure. Just without any predisposition inside the system. Right. You can't pre-program it in any way. You can't cheat. If you get that to happen without cheating, you win. And we want to, our investors, not only will buy the patent from you, they'll pay for the patent to get filed. So we've budgeted a generous amount of money for lawyers and patents. I mean, it's going to be a fight. Okay, this is a patent fight if there ever was one. Yeah. If somebody figures this out, oh my goodness, right? And it might be worth way more than $10 million. There might be a whole bunch of negotiation. I mean, but we're at least guaranteeing that whatever the prize amount is, that the discoverer will at least get that much money and they'll be partnered into the company. So they are, can get future profits. 
So we've thought this through, and I've got some very smart people in my investment group. I mean, one of them is worth over half a billion dollars. I mean, there's some very talented people on my team. And, you know, George Church is no slouch, and Dennis Noble is no slouch. We got some very smart people. And maybe this can be solved. And if it can, great. If it can't, then we're not going to make up stories. So, like, one time, I think this was 2004 or five, something like that. I was listening to this radio show, and it was Richard Dawkins going head to head with George Gilder on an NPR station in Boston. And Richard Dawkins is the world's most famous atheist, and, and he wrote the world's best selling book on evolution, which is called the, either The Selfish Gene or Blind Watchmaker. They're both hugely popular books. And somebody calls on the phone and they go, so Mr. Dawkins, where did life come from? And Dawkins goes, it was a happy chemical accident. And then he just kind of goes on. And I'm like, happy chemical accident? What kind of answer is that? I was like, did he just say that? Hmm. Like, and then he just went on as though he had answered the question? That's no answer. That's not even science. That's anti-science. Okay. When we're talking about where life come from, there's not going to be any more lucky lightning strike, warm pond, happy chemical accident. That is not an acceptable answer to the most interesting, fascinating question in all of science. That is not okay. And he was a professor at Oxford. He has no business shrugging off those kind of questions so glibly. This is a serious question. It deserves a serious answer. This is not a joke. Life is not a joke. And if you don't know, you say you don't know, but you don't make stuff up. That's not science. And that does not serve the public. Any professor at any university has a fiduciary responsibility to serve the public and to tell the truth. And what has happened is that Christians have invented their own version of science, and the atheists have invented their own version of science, and neither of them matches up to the facts. Neo-Darwinism, this Falcons have copying errors. Nobody should believe that. Nobody should have ever believed that. But especially since Barbara McClintock. In fact, science was really on a wrong path for 60 or 70 years. I mean, really, neo-Darwinism is dying. It is, and it cannot be saved, and they all know it can't be saved. Um, I would say, if you want an official date, neo-Darwinism died an official death at the Royal Society meeting in November 2016, which Dennis Noble organized and basically said, all right, so we need people who believe in evolution but do not buy into neo-Darwinism. We need a major conference where all the leading thinkers that are studying natural genetic engineering and all these kind of systems in nature we need a conference where those people get together and present what they've discovered. And there was a huge political fight within the Royal Society, and there was a lot of people that didn't want that conference to happen. 
but they pulled it off and they got it to happen. And I was there and it was incredible. And nobody is willing to defend neo-Darwinism in public anymore. Mm. You know, Jerry Coyne won't even debate people in public. He avoids it. He'll shoot people from the safety of his blog, but he won't actually go out and debate people head to head. I mean, I'd love to see him debate Jim Shapiro or or uh, Ava Yablanka or Dennis Noble or any of these people, but he would end up looking very bad. Um, and Dawkins won't do it either. And so we're in a new era of biology. And it's kind of like, you know, you could think of that meeting as like the Protestant Reformation of evolutionary biology. And I felt like Forrest Gump that I was actually there. Like there's been this hegemony that has held the old theory in place for such a long time and they've held sway over the profession, but they've lost a lot of their pen. The profession is really moving on. So is your primary goal to eventually get to the end of this problem and say, ah, I told you God existed, or is it to more so, I think you said it earlier, heal the rift? Um, it's, it's more about healing the rift. I mean, I'm sure some Christians will be disturbed that, you know, Perry's not out trying to prove that God exists. Here's what I found. You know, I can do a God of the gaps argument as good as anybody, and I've got as good of a God of the gaps argument as anybody has got, okay? DNA is a code, all the codes are designed, therefore DNA is designed, and hey, and I got $5 million to prove that I'm right. Well, the $5 million is no longer to prove that I'm right. The $5 million is to pursue the truth. The fact is we don't know where the genetic code came from. Maybe it's a divine miracle. Maybe it's an act of God. I'm fine with that. But maybe it's an undiscovered law of physics, and maybe it's something absolutely incredible. And maybe if we solve this, we'll solve consciousness, and we'll solve AI, and we'll understand biology so much better, and maybe it would be this huge breakthrough. I don't know. I found that if I used a God of the gaps argument to back people into a corner, once people got backed into the corner, they would just leave and they would not stay engaged. In other words, I could never twist anybody's arm and get them to believe in God. It just doesn't work. Right. And so I don't use that approach anymore. But what we can do is we can start telling the truth about science. We can follow the evidence wherever it leads. We can speak the truth at any cost if we so choose. And there is no reason for there to be this war between these two sides. I think it's completely ridiculous. It's counterproductive. I know all kinds of scientists who, especially in evolutionary biology, they can't really admit in public that they have faith. It would be like coming out. I know all kinds of scientists who believe that there is some level of design in the universe, but if they use the word intelligent design, they would just get their head smashed in. There are scientists that can't let it be publicly known that they're friends with me. If you look at, uh, no, there's not many of those, but, but they are, they do exist. If you look at George Church and Dennis Noble and Michael Roos, my judges, they're all bulletproof. Nobody can take them out. They all have tenure. They all have huge accomplishments. And being on Perry's controversial prize panel isn't going to hurt their career. 
but a normal regular professor would probably not be able to get away with it, at least at this point in time. I want that to change. Hmm. It shouldn't matter what your religious beliefs are if you're a scientist. And if you're a scientist, you should be allowed to believe that the universe is designed or that the universe is purposeful. I mean, it's very obvious that eyes are for the purpose of seeing and hearts are for the purpose of beating, and you can't get around this. Yet in biology, it's been forbidden to exist that purpose exists in nature. No, purpose does exist in nature. It's very obvious that it does. All codes are purposeful. All organs and bodies of all kinds of animals are purposeful. So we live in a very purposeful world. And purpose is a legitimate inquiry. And we need to break down the Berlin Wall so that people are free to ask questions. And so I'm trying to break that down. And I think if we can break down that wall, the issues around faith itself, they can take care of themselves. I think if you can have an honest conversation, faith is going to do just fine. It's when you have forbidden areas of conversation, forbidden areas of discourse, that actually causes doubt to flourish. Totally. So this utopia of a demilitarized conversation, mm, mm. what are you doing to facilitate? When I announced the prize at Arizona State, I talked about a demilitarized zone. And, you know, the DMZ between North and South Korea is where the two sides can talk and they don't shoot each other. And so I came up with four rules for DMZ. So one of them is put down your weapons, okay? You can't come into the DMZ and be trying to shoot people, okay? Everybody needs to be welcome to the conversation, whether you disagree with them or agree with them or anything. And to that point, there is no segment of this fractured debate that I have not learned important things from. Okay, so I've been critical of young earth creationism. I've learned a lot from young earth creationists. In fact, one of the best books I've ever read is In the Beginning Was Information by Werner Gitt. He is a six-day young earth creationist, but he's also an engineering professor in Germany, and it's a superb discourse on the information problem in biology. Now, the Creation Research Quarterly guys, they kind of chastised me. They said, you know, Mr. Gitt's been out there for 20 years, and he hasn't gotten anywhere, and I think Perry's prize is a fool's errand. Well, I've gotten somewhere with this prize. I've got people taking me seriously. I'm speaking at university. I mean, I gave a talk at Notre Dame a few months ago. I launched the prize at ASU. I've got the leading geneticist at Harvard. I've got the leading physiologist at Oxford. I've got people taking this seriously. I've got millions of dollars of investment. I think we have Shark Tank for biological ideas is actually what I think we have here. So I'm actually making some progress, but I've learned things from Richard Dawkins, even though I don't like him. And I've learned things from Jerry Coyne, even though I don't like him. And I've, you know, there's all these people and like, Everybody has pieces of truth, and I don't think anybody has it all right. And so I don't think you can say, oh, you know, these guys are the ones that are right and everybody else is wrong. I don't think that's true. So put down your weapons. Number two, assume positive intention. Okay, so 
what that means is people need to realize that even their worst opponent on the worst day has some good motives in what they're trying to do. There's some goodness in the pursuit, even if you don't like the way they're pursuing it. And so you assume that in their own way that people are looking for the truth. Another one is ignore no verifiable fact. If you can figure out that it's true and you don't get to sweep things off the table that don't seem to fit your model, if you can verify that it's true, then you have to leave it on the table, even if you don't know what to do with it. Kind of like I didn't know what to do with evolution for quite a while, so I just let it ride. Mm -hmm. right um get to the truth not the sale in other words make this about finding the truth don't make it about beating your ideological drum and i got this from my friend ari galper who's a sales trainer and he does these workshops where uh he'll train salespeople, and he has to like deprogram them from being a little propagandist for whatever brand of car they're selling or whatever their product is. Like, no, your first job is to figure out, does the person you're selling to even need this in the first place? And will this actually solve their problem? This is about them before it's ever about you, right? And well, if people do that, they can actually trust salespeople. Have you ever gone to a salesperson? He's like, Oh, I wouldn't put siding on that house. In fact, that whole wall needs to be ripped out because it's got mold in it. You know, where a, a lousy salesman, he'd just sell you the siding. And then you put new siding over a house that's rotting, right? And you respect people that actually consider what your needs actually are. And so those are the rules of the DMZ. And, you know, if people can stick to those rules, I think we can have a peaceful conversation and people, you know, the creationists know a lot of valuable stuff and the creationists have brought up many critiques of evolution that are valid. And I have to make very clear. I think we've only figured out about 5% of how evolution works. So when a creationist says you haven't solved that, you haven't solved that, you haven't solved that, you haven't solved that, you have Usually they're right. Now, they're not always right. Okay. But sometimes, at least sometimes they're right. And my approach is to say, okay, I have a hypothesis that if we continue to pursue the truth at any cost, that a mechanism for what you see there will be figured out. And I believe that the most God-honoring way to practice science is to assume that there's an answer somewhere and it can be discovered. We don't just give up and say, God did it. You know, there isn't any scientist who could say, God did it, that settles it. So let's have a three martini lunch. Scientists can't do that. Maybe pastors can, but not scientists. And so I really, really respect what scientists do in their jobs. And I don't think God of gaps arguments, I, I don't think Christians should be saying, you can't figure that out. Like some people wondered, uh, like 
I was talking to some some scientists uh, last year, and they're like, "So is the purpose of your prize just to kind of rub people's nose in the fact that they haven't solved it yet?" It's like, no, it's just truth serum. And I totally applaud if somebody can solve this. Like, this is not a Trojan horse. I'd love it if somebody solved it. Now it raise all kinds of new questions, ethical questions, whatever. AI questions. Yeah, I realize that. But, you know, a lot of Christians kind of avoid this sort of stuff. Well, then what happens is Monsanto discovered. Well, who wants Monsanto to own this? That would not be good. So we need ethical, conscientious people to own a technology like this. So I think Christians have been so afraid of being on the forefront of science and technology, and for that matter, for the arts and culture, and this is not okay. Like, Christians used to be in the lead, so why did they abdicate? Why did they? Well, it's not good. Yeah. So, kind of bringing this whole baby back full circle then. So, where's Brian at today? You know, if you go to evo2.org slash Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, there's a video where he actually talks for an hour about where he's at. And that was recorded in 2017. You know, he's still figuring things out. He's still exploring. He's not hostile to faith. He's not a Christian either. And we get along great. I mean, he's the president of my company. Yeah, everybody asks about Brian. And I guess, you know, one of the things that happened as a result of the whole Brian thing was I became comfortable having people like right in my face, right in my personal space, who don't believe the same way I do. And I'm I'm okay with it. You know, when Brian left faith, he lost a lot of there were a whole bunch of people who they talked behind his back. They kind of shunned him. They wouldn't meet with them. It was like all this whispering in the background. And it's like he found out who his real friends really were. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm really disappointed that a lot of his old friends really were only comfortable with Brian if he believed the same way they did. Okay. How flimsy and weak is your faith if you're afraid that Brian is going to corrupt you? And how come you're not willing to go to the bottom of the swamp with your beliefs and figure out why you believe what you believe? Or are you just going to recite a doctrine that somebody else gave you? Sure. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean people of all kinds of persuasions. I mean, I've got it. None of my judges are Christians. I've got investors who are Christians. I've got investors who aren't Christians. I've got, I mean, I mix it up with everybody and I love it. It's like those seeker groups that we did at Willow Creek. It's like, that was a DMZ. You do not have to believe the way I do to sit here in the table and talk about this. As long as we can just have a conversation. Can't we just have a conversation? Like, isn't social media polarized enough? If you're a Christian, can you have a beer with atheists and figure out how you're going to get along and talk about this stuff and just be calm? 
man, we need that. Like if people can't learn to do that, we're in trouble. Um, so this is about the DMZ. This is about opening up the space. This is about having the conversation. It's about healing the rift between science and religion. I've got two lifetime ambitions. I want to heal the rift between science and religion and start a second renaissance. And if you're going to have a second renaissance, people have to be curious and they have to want to know. And they have to just not be content with the answer that somebody served them on a silver platter. And that's what happened to me when I get plunged into this. I said, I'm not taking anybody's answer for this. I'm going to go to the most fundamental definitions, the most fundamental reality that I can find. And then I'm just going to keep chiseling harder. And I'm going to put things on the anvil. I'm going to pound them as hard as I can. And if it breaks, it breaks and I'll give it up. And if it holds together, it holds together. So how do you read Genesis? Because a lot of this talk can totally change the way that we view Genesis if we right. view it in a six-day creationist type of view. So first I want to say that the way that Genesis has become interpreted by American evangelicals, because actually this way of reading Genesis, it's very peculiar to Americans or American exports. Okay, like the Catholics don't read it this way. The Orthodox don't read it this way. The Pentecostals may or may not read it this way. But that way of reading Genesis is very brittle. And it's like, well, if I change anything at the beginning, then the perception is that like the whole gospel falls apart. The whole Bible falls apart. I do not agree. Okay. I think there are assumptions that are baked in that have to be changed, okay? So let's talk through some of those assumptions. One of the assumptions that you have to challenge is the nature of the fall of man. So the traditional version is that planet Earth was a perfect paradise, and the Garden of Eden was a perfect paradise, and then man sinned, and then death came into the world. I think that's the wrong definition of the fall, and I don't think that definition is even biblical. The fall is not the introduction of animal death in the world or physical death in the world. The fall is the loss of connection with God. Two totally different things. Okay, you'll notice in the Garden of Eden story, there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's a tree of life. And they chose the knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life. Why is there a tree of life if they're immortal? They're not immortal. And death does exist in the world. Now, science tells us this very clearly. But even the Bible says it was very good. It doesn't say it was perfect. There's a huge difference between very good and perfect. If you go into an unspoiled mountain range where humans haven't been around, and you or a forest or a cliff or an ocean, it is beautiful. It is amazing. It is very good. And yes, I am suggesting that a world with predation and carnivores and lions and tigers and bears and sharks is still good. Okay, now, some people are kind of horrified at this. I'm like, well, hang on a second. If you're horrified at that, why are you not horrified by the idea that there was a serpent in the garden? Like, which is worse, sharks and bacteria or Satan? 
Look, any way I read the Genesis story, conflict is baked in from the word go. Conflict is waiting to happen. I think the young earth position just turns a blind eye to that and goes, oh, God would never make a world where there's conflict. God obviously made a cosmos that's in conflict. Accept it. Like, I mean, I think this is the first stage of just fully being an adult. There is conflict in the world. So, you know, this idea that death came from Adam's sin, this comes from Romans 5. But if you read Romans 5 very carefully, it's very clearly he's not talking about animals and he's not even talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about separation from God. Okay, so if you redefine the fall a little bit, which you have to in order to line up with everything that we know about the world. Okay, so there was death going on in the world for millions of years as all of our geology and anthropology and everything clearly shows us. So there's some more assumptions that have gotten baked in, snuck in to Christian theology that I think are wrong. Another one of these assumptions is the idea that sin is transmitted genetically. Well, this idea came from Augustine. It's not in the Bible. As far as I can tell, sin is transmitted by knowledge. Sin is transmitted the same way salvation is, by knowledge. And so Adam wasn't the first human. Adam was the first prophet. There were other people around. The scripture even implies that there were. Cain kills Abel, and he's like, oh, no, somebody's going to kill me. Who? According to the story, there's only mom, dad, and him. Who's he talking about? And then he runs to a city. He runs, he goes somewhere. He gets married and he builds a city. He gets married to who? And he builds a city for who? Now, the traditional creationist position has to make up all kinds of stuff that's not in the Bible to make all that fit. Well, how about there was other humans around? And Adam was the first one that God revealed himself to. And I've got a book called Historical Genesis from Adam to Abraham by Richard Fisher. And I know Richard. He's a friend of mine. It's a brilliant book. He explains how there are references to a a holy man named Adam in ancient Mesopotamian literature. And that this was a real guy. And he was the first Semitic person. He wasn't the first human. Anthropology clearly shows us that there were other humans. Let's take another few assumptions. Day is a period of time. Well, that's what I assume. Why would you assume that a day is 24 hours if regular day seasons and years don't appear until day four? And then at the beginning of Genesis 2, it talks about the whole creation from the previous chapter as happening in a day using the word yom. So, the word day isn't even consistent in its use. So I don't see any reason to be dogmatic about the word day. Now, I think the reason that they insist on short days and a perfect creation is that that makes all sin and death, it lays sin and death at the feet of mankind instead of God. And a lot of people are more comfortable laying all that at man's feet instead of God's because of the suffering that goes on in the world. Like, well, okay, so if lions have been eating rabbits 
you know, for millions of years, then wow, you know, that's a cruel world. Yes, it is. And you need to accept it. If you can accept the fact that there was a serpent in the Garden of Eden, I don't see why you can't accept that there's animals eating animals in the world. And, uh, okay, and then one other assumption. If you read Genesis assuming that the story is told from an earthly point of view and not from outer space, then all of a sudden it makes sense that there was light but there weren't days and years and seasons, there weren't seasons and years before day four, which is when the atmosphere would have been transparent enough to see the sun and the moon. And so that's why you see the sun and the moon on day four. Now, I think that's a reasonable theory. Now, I'm not dogmatic about that theory. I think another way of reading Genesis is that it's not literal chronological narrative the way people assume it is, that it's a highly poetic and symbolic. So this is like people like John Walton and a lot of other people, they have a very different interpretation. And I think there are good arguments for saying that you shouldn't try to overlay the Genesis 1 story with modern cosmology and make them line up. And they may be right. I'll only point out that if you assume a day is a period of time, if you assume the story is told from an earthly perspective, and if you assume Adam was the first prophet, not the first human, the whole thing fits modern cosmology just fine. And there isn't any other ancient religious book or ancient creation story where you can make a handful of assumptions and get any of it to fit. And so there's a reason why people are still arguing about Genesis. They're not really arguing about the Hindu version or the Buddhist version. So that's how I read Genesis. And therefore, you know, Jesus doesn't fall apart if there's an evolutionary story and, and the New Testament and the rest of it. In fact, I'll even go further. I don't think you can actually really understand the Old Testament in particular without some sense of an evolutionary view. I think that the Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate counter-Darwinian manifesto. So, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And, you know, give to people who ask of you, and you know, all of that, okay? And you have Paul saying, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. All are equal in Christ Jesus. Okay. Nobody had ever said that or really anything quite like it before then. The notion of all human beings being equal did not exist before Jesus and Paul. Didn't exist wasn't to be found. Okay, well, I'm going to go a little further and say equality didn't exist. There wasn't equality on the world in the world. Now, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote this book called Democracy in America. And the French sent him to the United States in the 1820s and 30s. The French aristocracy was freaking out. They were like, what is this democracy thing? What's going on in America? This is like turning everything upside down. They were scared. 
and everybody in Europe is talking about America. So they sent the smartest guy they could find to, to America, Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote Democracy in America. It is one of the best books I've ever read. And in that book, he says, okay, so what is the core DNA of the United States? What's it based on? And he said, it's based on two things. It's based on equality and individualism. And he coined the term individualism. He needed that word to describe Americans because it didn't exist that way in Europe. And he said, these two things in tension with each other are what drive America. And so he described the individualism, which I think we can all understand. And he said, okay, where did the idea of equality come from? And he, he goes all the way back to Paul, who says in Christ, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. He says, that's where the idea of equality got planted in civilization. And then it slowly, slowly grew and grew and grew. And eventually you get to the Magna Carta and the invention of the gun and the invention of the horseshoe and the invention of democracy and the post office and the library and like all these things and everything made more equality, more equality, more equality. And it started with Paul. Well, you have to fix this idea in your mind because before Paul and Jesus, it didn't exist. Now, we read the Old Testament and we think that equality exists. It doesn't. The Jews do not consider the, all of the tribes around them to be equal. And nobody in the ancient world thinks there's anything unusual about it's springtime and the roads aren't muddy anymore. So we're going to get in our chariots. We're going to go down to the next village. And we're going to kill everybody and take everything they have. Like, this was how the world works. You didn't go, oh, they're equal to us. They have equal rights. No, it didn't exist. It doesn't really even exist in the Jewish law either. Okay, so Darwinism and evolution and all of that, that is based on inequality, right? In the survival of the fittest and all of that. Jesus comes and he's like, okay, everybody, hold on. That will only get you so far. It'll get you tribalism, it'll get you tribe warfare, and it'll get you, you know, people struggling for dominance and superiority. It won't get you the kind of peaceful society that humans want in their hearts. What humans want in the sense of being reconnected to God and going back to the Garden of Eden, which I think was an opportunity to heal the earth. It was an opportunity to own our authority and be connected to God. But Jesus like, okay, let's take a second run at this, but everybody is equal. You're equal to me, equal to her, equal to him, black, white, Jew, slave, free, everybody's equal, right? And then this equality juggernaut, as Tocqueville explains how it comes in and it starts eating away at racism, it starts eating away at slavery, it starts eating away at tribalism. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand What's the idea of the Garden of Eden? It's the first shot at creating this equality, which failed. Okay, so now we have a second shot, which is Christ. But the Old Testament suddenly makes sense why this inequality, why we're going and killing the Hittites and all this kind of stuff. It's because they were not considered to be equal. They were not considered to be children of God. Now, I don't have time to go any further into trying to explain this, but I think if you understand 
See, you read the Old Testament, and especially you get to the children of Israel and, and at the beginning of Exodus, and then you pay attention. It's like this really primitive society. They're like children. And what you see in the course of the Bible is you see humanity growing up. And then you get to the New Testament. It's like, okay, now you're ready for the real stuff. And the real stuff is you're all made in the image of God. And you can all have the spirit of God. And you can start to create a civilization that you could have never imagined in that old world. And you can't judge that ancient world by the new world because the human race had to evolve through it. If you believe in evolution, then you understand that the Old Testament is just reporting the evolution of the human race. And that's where we were. And we were in this very immature state of being able to relate to God, too. So you have a necessarily limited understanding of God, which is not what we have now. We have a much better understanding of God. So I believe in an evolutionary arc, and I believe the most evolutionary figure in human history is Jesus. Hmm. Nobody equals Jesus. Like... Even five-year-olds know that Jesus doesn't kill people. I mean, we all know how abusive religion has been. And there's Mr. G demoting my dad for taking mom to a psychiatrist. And, you know, there's the scientist, you know, basically kicking Barbara McClintock out of their little club for thinking that plants edit their own DNA. And there's all these injustices that happen. But we know they're wrong, okay? And we know Jesus doesn't treat people that way. You know, Jesus has like the most consistent branding of anybody in history, speaking as a marketing guy, right? Even the five, all the five-year-olds, all the Muslims, all the Jews, all they all know that Jesus is a peaceful guy, right? They all have some idea what would Jesus do. Well, that's the evolution that we have to aspire to. And it becomes pretty clear that you have this arc of physical evolution, which is natural genetic engineering, and it will only take you so far. And when you want to evolve spiritually, you have to completely redefine even what evolution is. And that's what the New Testament is. Um, and it's what the prophets in the Old Testament were always hinting at. And there's always these prophetic passages by Isaiah or, or whatever, where they're envisioning a peaceful society. And a lot of evangelical Christians think that we ever had that in the past. No, we didn't. It never existed. There was a hint of it in the Garden of Eden, but, I mean, however long it took, it was like they punted on that plan, and then we're back to the evolutionary world we came from, except now we have this knowledge that we can't get rid of, and it's this knowledge of God, and so it chafes at us. And so this is, it's that chafing between this, idea of what a godly kingdom might be like versus this tribal world we live in that kind of explains the whole path of people throughout um, religious inquiry and seeking after God. Well, Perry, this has been absolutely awesome, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to go through all this and answer all these questions for myself and listeners. Well, thank you for doing this because it's need to be done for a long time. And thank you for watching and paying attention and, you know, post comments on the blog and let's keep the conversation going. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Perry. Thank you. Guys, have a great day. This is Perry Marshall, Evolution 2.0. Thanks. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. 
To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Thank you.